BBC Five Live. Sound <laughs> of success. Executive plastic. Well, so describe it. It is a piece of perspex, which has been lovingly carved with the finest chisel from Sheffield in the foothills of the perspex mountains in Sheffield. Yes. <laughs> uh, and into this uh, thing, it says there's a microphone with a long cable which winds around uh, the entire thing. It's got yeah. earphones at the back of the cable. Technically inaccurate, isn't it? Because if you just plug the microphone into earphones, it wouldn't work. That is. That is. Well, but there we go. It's not. A, it's not. It's not so much a diagram as an illustration. It represents. It represents with a Z. Uh, British Podcast Awards. It says etched in finest silver. <laughs> oh no, it's just scratched. <laughs> scratched. Twenty eighteen. The Listener's Choice Podcast. Yes. And who's that, who? Who does it say it's to? It, it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say our names on it. But what? Are we you kidding? It doesn't actually say our names. No. I could carve. You it. could carve it in with a compass. I could do that, just like right. in school. Exactly. Etch, my, etch our names into this. <laughs> that is true. It never occurred to me that they didn't actually put our names on it. Was it? Was our name on the sec- on the previous one? Because let's be honest, that's the second one we've won. It is two years the on the trot. second. Two years on the trot. They could just have etched it in the, at the beginning because it's like our name is just like on it. Exactly. They could just at the, right at the very start. They go. That is the award for Kermit. So we were all there. It was on Saturday night, Saturday night, Saturday night. And obviously what we should say is, um, I mean, I don't think we mention it very often. No. And it was like an instinctive um, vote on behalf of everybody who listens to this podcast. People just naturally, organically decided to vote. They did, without our prompting. Yeah. Though much was made on Saturday night of the fact that we kept on going on about it. (laughs) Unlike every other podcast, anyway. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Steve, for voting for us because it was it was a good night and there lovely very good people, night. lovely people there. Yes, and uh, we the listeners' choice is kind of like the one to win, isn't it? Because it represents everybody. Yes, it's <laughs> it's an expression of the democratic will of the nation. Oh, is that what it is? Is it? Is it it's like now we run the country. Oh, fine. Okay. So, what do we do first? Our first measure. I think, is to enforce the code of conduct. Very good. Okay, and that this will become law. Yes. And law. It should become the law. And that basically, if you wouldn't survive uh, in the movie A Quiet Place by taking your that particular snack uh, into a film, then you can, that's, that's just the way you have to think about it. And we've just made it as a whimsical thing on our website and talked about it a bit, but when we get elected, it's the law. Can I have the podcast award? Yeah. What do you want to do with it? I'm going to take it home. No, you can't take it home. Why? Because it's I haven't. It's mine. No, you've got the other one. I haven't got the other one. I've never seen the other one. Were you with... No, you've got... This is the second one. There's two yes. of us. I don't know where the other one is. I've never seen it. Where's the first... I don't know. Robin? It's on, it's on Robin's desk. There you go. Well, he is the puppet master, so why shouldn't he have it? Well, because... Well, because, hang on, right, you've got one of the Sony Awards now, thank you. I've got, I've got a few. Ooh, get you, I've got a few, ooh. 
I've got one, but I've actually won two, but one of them's on your mantelpiece. Anyway, we're going to... Th- and if you've got a few and you don't want that second one that I brought in because you whinged and complained about it... How long had you had it? They're not... Remind me. Uh, a number of years? A, a few uh, months. Anyway, the thing I'm is... I'm sure it's due... It's due When Nick Kennedy and I bought... Who's he? He's a, if you give me a minute. When Nick Kennedy and I, my school friend, bought Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy together because neither of us could afford it on our own, mm-hmm. we shared it on a week-on, week-off basis until I didn't give it back. And then I shared it on a 40-year until... OK, fine. We have got a good idea as to what to do with it with our piece of Perspex, but we're going to mention that a little bit later? Yes, we're going to mention that a little bit later on. What, a better idea than I take it home and put it on display in much, my house? Much, 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 much. But the top of my piano has space for it. I've cleared space for it already. Sorry. It's behind. (laughs) Shall I tell you where it's going to go? There's the the Sony Award there, just the one of them. Uh, And then there's a a space, an unpolished space, where the second one should be. Yeah, that ain't going to go there. But you've got it, okay? And then over here, there's the one of the Kurt Mode Awards that they let me keep from the culture show. They only let me keep Mm. one. There's that. And then there's a picture of Linda. The good lady professor in indoors. But the thing is, that's very lovely and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, we'd all like to put that on our piano. But um, we've still got a. Well, you'd all like idea. to put a picture of Linda on your piano. Yeah. Why don't <laughs> okay. we do that? Okay. So anyway, so if you if you hang around till I think towards the end of the podcast, we've got an idea whereby because it's the people's vote, we're thinking that maybe everyone can share in our triumph. I don't like the sound of that. I know. Spoken like a good lefty. <laughs> so um, Spoken like a good liberal. Anyway, so thanks very much anybody uh, to everybody who, who voted. And if you didn't vote, then obviously you're... We won anyway. We won anyway, so, yeah, so... you're booing <laughs> You voted for Test Match Special. I mean, come somebody, on. I was on, the, I was on the train and somebody said to me, um, love the show, Steve, I forgot to vote for you. And I said... It's okay, we won. They went, oh, I thought you'd lost. I went, no, no, we won. They went, oh, okay, I feel all right now. They'd obviously been carrying around the guilt. Very nice. Very nicely done. I was sitting in a cafe a couple of days ago, you know, the cafe where they serve tea and jam jars. As a science experiment. It's my favourite place. And there was a couple uh, having a chat next to me, and just as they got up to to leave, she'd written a message on her napkin, and she just handed it and then left, and it just said, as you can guess, hello to Jason Isaac. Isaac. So I just shouted, thanks very much. On that subject, Chris White says... Uh, dear disintegrated by Thanos and not disintegrated by <laughs> Thanos. Chris, White, Chris White, by the way, is ExoMars spacecraft operations engineer. Really? I'm part of a team flying the ExoMars TGO spacecraft for the European Space Agency. And in this capacity, I was attending a sci-fi convention, FedCon, to talk to the public. He's not sci-fi, he's sci-fact to talk to the public about science fact versus science fiction. Sorry, shouldn't have leapt in. While taking a break backstage, I spotted none other than Captain Gabriel Lorca himself, Jason Isaacs, direct from giving a very entertaining Q&A session to the assembled fans. Cautiously, I approached. Dare I violate the personal space of a superstar actor? But I couldn't miss the opportunity to say hello to Jason Isaacs in person. I was hoping for a hello back, or at least a nod of acknowledgement. But I must tell my fellow churchgoers, this is not what happened. Instead, he leapt to his feet, shook my hand and said, ah, you're a fan of the show, before spending ten precious minutes of his backstage time chatting about Star Trek, 
the death of Stalin and Mark having been wrong about Greatest Showman. <laughs> he was warm, articulate and funny, and I was left with the impression of having spoken to a real-life superstar and an all-round good guy. Yep. I hope many more juicy acting roles find their way to his door. He deserved the, deserves them and so do we. Tickety-tonk and all that. Thank you, Chris White, ExoMars Spacecraft Operations Engineer. He is a class act, isn't he? Chris Jason? White, yeah. No, good, good guess right, but also the great Jason is, uh, you know, never backwards in coming forwards. Uh, Lucy Cavell, dear dresses like a teenager and dresses like a professional. But which but, but, one is which? Yeah, because it, oh, it was all change on Saturday night. Yeah, well, we did put these on uh, on our Twitter account, didn't we, on the Wittertainment Twitter account. I was super smart in a suit and you were super scruff. Yeah. So I thought it was... It was Saturday. I was off duty. Pleasingly confusing. <laughs> on Friday the 18th of May, I attended a family wedding in Coventry. Many congratulations to Mr and Mrs Bell, says Lucy. And at the wedding uh, was a guest who had travelled all the way from Canada. I'd heard an awful lot about Alison over the years from our Aunt Caroline, and so it was fantastic to finally meet her. Whilst sat down for the wedding breakfast, we're chatting away and talking about podcasts. I mentioned that I listened to a film review show by a certain pair called Kermode de Mayo, and at this point, Alison's eyes light up. She practically bounces out of her seat and says, Hello to Jason Isaacs. <laughs> I was delighted, responding with a slightly too enthusiastic tinkety <laughs> much to the bemusement of other guests at the table. This is one of many common interests we shared and made a special family event even better. Please could I ask your good selves to give a was-up to Alison Hancock and her partner, Matt, She's an STL, but she's working her way through the back catalogue to catch up. And a wass-up to my husband, Steve, too, for, you know, pretty much everything. And congratulations to the Wittertainment crew for winning the British Podcast Award. Keep up the good work, etc. Hello to Jason, tinkety-tonk, and all that. So everything is in there. Uh, Lucy, And then you have to do the wass-up. You often read that you say that, and then you don't do it. Did I? Well, OK. What you mean is a separate thing? Yeah, because the way you say it is not the same as when what's you're reading up, what's it What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? up, Steve. And Alison. Very good. <laughs> I talk to my kids like this now. <laughs> when they ring me up, I just go, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? You're not on the podcast. This is a proper, proper conversation. You don't do that when I ring you. I can if you want. I'm not a performing monkey, but I'll do that if you if it gives you pleasure. But you, When I ring you, you do this thing where you go, yep. Well, I, it's because you might be about to break into one of your anecdotes. I'm trying oh, right, to encourage brevity. But you do. That's literally what you do. You go, yep. And then I, and I always feel like, and I have to go, oh, are you in the middle of something? No. Oh. Just well, encouraging then, brevity. Like, a, you know. Okay. It's just weird. It's just like, hello, Mark. How are you? No. Yep. That's very short. I've got used to it now. Um, Miranda Vogel sends us an email from Mora in New Mexico. Okay. So, sorry, from Mora, the place in New Mexico. Yes, that's okay. right. Hello from northern New Mexico in the beautiful Sangre de Cristo Mountains uh, of the Southern Rockies. According to the iWitter app, I'm the only person, the only listener in these parts. I'm a forester. In the daily course of my work for a public land management agency, which will remain nameless, I drive sometimes long distances from the office to the field where I hike through the woods taking measurements I will use to help private landowners manage their forests. I always listen to the podcast in my truck, but after a scary encounter with bears last summer, I also take it with me into the field. Uh, turned up to the highest volume so I have something to make me laugh and keep the jitters away, as well as to make me feel too big and noisy for animals to bother with. Predators like cougars and bears usually don't have much interest in people unless their cubs are threatened. 
But wild animals can become habituated to remote mountain towns and lose their fear of humans when residents leave trash or dog food or other easy pickings on the edge of their territory. Yes. So when people say, you know, I'm out walking or, you know, I'm out running and so on, then dodging traffic or yeah. Toby Jones or whoever happens <laughs> to be around. Just remember Miranda, who's trying to make sure that she's not too scared by the... By the bears. By the bears. Anyway, during one such day at work, I was pleased to hear Mark's bid for Hostiles uh, for DVD of the week on the April the 27th pod. Yes. Parts of the film were shot here in northern New Mexico in places I'm familiar with. A rancher friend of mine who had Gene Hackman for a neighbour for a while, in case you're interested, was even approached by a location scout who was considering my friend's land for filming. The scout took a bunch of photos, but in the end decided to shoot elsewhere. Oh, well, New Mexico is a popular shooting location for quite a few American TV shows and movies like Brokeback Mountain and No Country for Old Men. And it's my birthday soon, so if you read this out, it'll be the best present evs. In the meantime, I'll be holding down Forestry Fort in the church, if such a place doesn't already exist. Well, the podcast, that sort of didn't really go anywhere in particular, apart from the fact nice. I, liked, I liked the slice of life from a forester in New Mexico yeah. uh, actually confronting bears on a regular basis have and been, turning up the pod loud. Have you been to New Mexico? I've never been to New Mexico. I've been to New Mexico. I, was, I guess that's where it was going. What were you doing there? I went with the good lady Professor her indoors because we were on a D.H. Lawrence pilgrimage. Do you? Well, she, because she was written books about D.H. Lawrence. She's a Laurentian. I thought he was from Nottingham. Yeah, but he didn't have to stay in Nottingham. What's it got to do in New Mexico? He wrote. In New Mexico? Yeah. He wrote, I think he wrote Mornings in New Mexico. In New Mexico, in fact. What do you do when you get to New Mexico on a pilgrimage? We we stayed in a a place near where he stayed. And then we went to the places that he talked about in his writings. And was it really lovely? Would you recommend? It was actually. I mean, it's really beautiful. The light is incredible. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's really, really lovely. Is that, can I go on a DH pilgrimage to DH Lawrence pilgrimage to Nottingham? Yeah, almost certainly. I just if you could check that out for <laughs> I'll, me. I'll 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 get back to you. Are you ready for the show? I'm, I'm, Are you warmed up? Uh good. On with the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, seven minutes past two. Welcome hello. to the programme. Hello to you too. No, I was saying hello to the listeners. Oh, I see. I know I don't usually do that, but I was experimenting with being friendly. I've finished with it now. Thank heavens for that. Slightly disconcerted. Uh, so we're here till four o'clock. Lots of movie reviews. Plus, we have Ron Howard talking solo, a Star Wars story after two thirty. Very good. And bucket loads of correspondence from people who've seen it already because it opened Wednesday. Uh, people at the midnight screenings, and it seems like the first thing people did while the credits were still rolling, <laughs> or as soon as they got out into the lobby, got in touch with us. Is send us uh, send us an email. So we'll talk about uh, solo, a Star Wars story after two thirty. Uh, box office top. That's the best 10. time to go to the dentist. You know that, don't you? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, Paul Cook. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm a short-term listener, first-time emailer. I'm living in London. I'm writing to, f- writing to you to find out whether any other members of your church suffer from what scientists will be calling F-tums. This is F-T-U-M-S, film title unintended melody syndrome. In fact, what's interesting about Paul is that but there was an outbreak of F-tums, on, though I didn't know it was called that, on last week's show, as you're about to find out. Every day on my current commute, says Paul, yeah. I pass a poster for Lean on Pete. And every day I read it, in my head it goes, Lean, Lean on, on Pete, Pete when, when you're, you're not strong. And he'll be your friend, okay. he'll help you carry on. Yeah, got it. Okay? Yeah. This is fairly straightforward and a very strong example of F-tums and appears to be an uncontrollable side effect of the swirling pop culture maelstrom of my music and movie adult mind. Yeah, this is like, oh, Danny Boyle. The problem is, once it's in, it's in. <laughs> and now I can never read Lean on Pete without hearing that melody. Last year was quite a strong F-tums year, with my favourite film of 2017 being Get Out. 
Stay out. Stay out for your rights. <laughs> Stay out. And w- once it's there, it's there forever. Uh, and of course, the inexplicable. Hold me closer, baby driver. Baby driver. <laughs> Which is a tiny dancer. Reference. <laughs> uh, I mean, the words aren't even That's close with good. that one. <laughs> Science is yet to unravel the mysteries of F Tums. But now I think there'll be lots of people. So last week when we were talking about On Chesil Beach, yes. and I said On Chesil Beach far away in time because that's the way <laughs> it occurs to me whenever I see it written and down. Somebody, somebody tweeted in that something they hear whenever they see Sir Sharonan. Anyway, says uh, Paul, I mean, uh, but in all cases, once my brain has made the connection, I can't read the title without hearing the tune. Do any other Wittetainees suffer from this affliction? Please could you give a was up to my Canadian colonial commoner wife, Ashley, who introduced me to the church a couple of years ago. Thank you. Uh, thanks tunefully. Uh, there's Paul Cook. I as, think F Tums will certainly will add to that. As Robin has just pointed out, it's Mama Sir Sharona. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. Does that work? Yes, it's my Sharona. I know it. It's my Sharona. Okay. That's going to be. And, and that's and that's what you'll hear from now on. Next whenever time. you see Mama Sir Sharona. So this. Uh, oh look! By the way, we've been invited to a wedding. Oh really? Yeah. Have we been properly? We're a couple. Mark Ooh. and Simon. This is Eleanor Burgess and Luke Toomey. Request the honour at uh, at their wedding, Saturday, 7th of July. Yeah. Um, gifts is a thing, how we can uh, give gifts <laughs> and stuff. And we tick the box, attending or non-attending, any dietary requirements. Where is it? It's in Stockport. Okay, it's not impossible. What's the date? It's the 7th of July. Shall I get your people to talk to my people? I think I'm probably at a thing. Are you at a thing? Yeah, one of those things that I can't talk about. Oh, is <laughs> Okay, sorry. Being very respectful. Sorry. Being very sorry. respectful. Okay, <clears throat> sorry. On a similar subject, Virginia Barry from Old Windsor. Uh, dear commoners, extremely long-term listener, back to the days when radio was in black and white. A-, a number of people have spotted this, but we've picked Virginia's email. Okay. Did anyone else notice the nod from one royal church to our church during the royal wedding commentary? No. Sure enough, at 10.32am, my ears pricked up when I heard this from Kirsty Young commentating on the pictures from inside St George's Chapel. What a day for Freya, who's 17. It's the first time she's ever worn a hat. She said, Mum, how do you wear a hat? I said, you just wear a hat. <laughs> now, that to me... <laughs> Sounds as though Kirsty's been listening to the show. Yeah. Anyway, this so. so this is she's uh, picking up top broadcasting tips. Yes. So this is Kirsty talking about her own daughter Freya. First time wearing a hat. How, How do you wear, wear a hat? hat? Kirsty says you just wear, wear a hat. hat. Now that sounds like an unusual exchange, unless you're in the Wittertainment Church. Yes. Me? Yeah. Surely it's subtle code, says Virginia to us devoted churchgoers. We'll have to find a space for Kirsty in commentators' corner. Check it out. Very good. Thank you and thank you. De- Everybody uh, for pointing that out. Kirsty, you know, you can get in, you could just walk, you're probably in the building now. Yes. Just walk along because you know where we are. Yeah. Or send us an email. Exactly. And come and say, yes, I was definitely referring to the show. Uh, ben, we'll do the box office top 10. Even if you weren't. Yeah, even if you weren't, just pretend that you were. Benjamin in Camberwell before the box office top 10. About the ongoing discussion of hills on which one is willing to die. Very uh, beautifully constructed sentence. My dad is a historian with an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of almost every period. Okay. This has made viewing movies set in the past a niggly experience for him. Indeed, he has a veritable continent of little mounds on which to perish. One of the most common errors is the quill pen. Right. 
which is invariably shown as a complete feather, when in fact it would have been stripped almost to the top, leaving just a small decorative tuft. Okay. This is why he was delighted by Mel Brooks's Robin Hood Men in Tights, employing historical inaccuracy with reckless abandon and to great comic effect. Brooks then proceeds to get the quill pen absolutely right, <laughs> stripped almost to the top, just as it would have been. My father likes to think this is a deliberate comical nod to all the historians in the audience. Intentional or not, it is perhaps a rare example of what I like to call the smallest hill on which I will yodel. So, <laughs> so I really like this. Benjamin says, are there any other examples of movies unexpectedly getting something absolutely right where so many others have failed? OK, that's very good. That's, that's so opening up a whole new yes. realm. I like it. So okay. I do like the idea of the hills which make you yodel. Yes. Because... Much to everybody's surprise, they've got something quite right. Box office top 10 is yeah. 40 minutes past uh, two. Uh, on Chesil Beach, far away in time at 10. Difficult uh, book to adapt. And uh, I think there are there, there are certain areas of the sort of interior story that don't quite make it to the screen. But that said, I think the performances are really good. I think my mum, my Sir Sharonan is terrific. Um, That's already annoying, by the way. Uh, is it? Mm. Okay. And I I went along with the epilogues because I thought that although they were kind of narratively contrived, they had an emotional truth that saw me through. Uh, Richard Brown, um, dear listener's choice. Oh, okay. <laughs> thanks. It's a reference to Did the, we mention that already? Reference to the uh, podcast award which mm. we won on Saturday. The second one. I attended a preview of On Chesil Beach at the wonderful Watershed in Bristol. Which is a fabulous cinema. Following some lukewarm reviews, I was a little apprehensive, but it vastly exceeded my expectations. Saoirse Ronan seems to get better and better, continuing from her stellar work in Lady Bird. She's matched all the way by Billy Howell, who approaches the intimacy of their wedding night with all the grim resolve as a soldier of a soldier headed to war. It's a strong cast across the board, and the story is compact, well told and engaging throughout. Although there are points in which the film drops off a little, particularly in the third act, it also contains some emotional gut punches which provoked gasps in the audience. Aside from some laughably bad cricket shots... I felt it was really good. Yes, you're the second person to have brought up the laughably bad yes. cricket. Rufus, age 17. Mark and Simon saw on Chesil Beach the other day at the wonderful Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley. Which is one of the greatest cinemas ever. At times, it was up there with the greatest horror films of the last decade. That's interesting. As yeah. the excruciating awkwardness of the scenes in the hotel left me more tense than any film I've seen in recent memory. Both yep. actors are great in these scenes and very much sell the idea that, not all is, uh, that it's not all as happy as they'd hoped. Q Mark calling here, there's a butt coming. There's a butt coming. It's a shame, however, about <laughs> the rest of the film, which flips between extreme cheese and being just plain dull. The flashbacks that occur throughout uh, interrupt the more interesting aspects of the film and added nothing to the central mystery. I was at no point particularly invested in the relationship between the two leads, which was likely a result of the film bouncing around between ideas and tones with little focus. Overall, I felt myself wishing the film had remained in the hotel room for longer and told the story of their relationship within the room rather than the reliance of flashbacks. Would not recommend. OK, although I think it is very important that they go out on the beach, not least because it is on Chesil Beach and there is something about the wildness of nature as opposed to the, the confined space of the hotel room. Allman Brown, the final denouement of this film, was absolutely beautiful. I cried like I was on a plane. Yeah. Two brilliant performances that power a tricky film adaptation of an intensely, fo <coughs> excuse me, intensely focused novel. On Chesil Beach at 10. At 9, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Does exactly go. what it says on the tin. Got it right as well. 
A Quiet Place is at number eight. Now a film which will be remembered for enshrining the principles of the Code of Conduct, not least because of the full aisle of untouched crisps. If you eat crisps, you will be killed by a monster. <laughs> that's basically the message. Uh, and that's at number eight. Uh, Breaking In is at seven. I thought it was kind of fine. I mean, it's very much a you know a B movie, but I like the I, I like the inversion of the mother's outside the house, the kids and the baddies are inside the house, so she's having to break into her own house. I mean, yes, it's a B picture, but it's. I thought it was perfectly well done. Uh, Blade Runner, Final Cut, uh, The Secret Cinema of 2018 is at six. Secret Cinema continues to uh, you know to go from strength to strength. Blade Runner, The Final Cut is a majestic movie in, in any uh, shape or form. I've only seen it, uh, in, nor I haven't been to the Secret Cinema films, but it's a great film. Uh, yes, a BBC colleague, uh, Phil, he, uh, he's done that. And oh, yeah. I thought it was absolutely fantastic and enormous fun. He was dressed as a juggler and had, you know, the, <laughs> the whole thing uh, was terrific. In the box office top ten, Life of the Parties at five. Which I didn't see. It wasn't press screen. So do you have any ma- email about it? Not a cent. Oh, well, there we Not go. Sausage. No one cares. Um, I Feel Pretty is at number four. So I'm going to go first okay, right. uh, on this. Oh, I have got I Feel Pretty. There you go. It's just in the... It's got misfiled entirely my fault, I'm sure. Claire Anderson, I saw I Feel Pretty last weekend. I was dragged against my will, not only because it's polite to be sociable. I'm not a fan of Amy Schumer. Schumer. Right, OK, so it's got Life of the Party, but it's actually about I Feel Pretty. So as you were, I Feel Pretty is at number four. Yes, sorry, I've now completely lost the place. What are we now doing? I I Feel Pretty pretty You said I'll go first. OK, well, I'll go first again then. Um, <laughs> I seem to have gone into some bizarre no, alternate fine. dimension it's perfect in which fine. you're a rubbish presenter. Here we go. Adam Clegg says, To celebrate the end of my 12-year-old daughter Scarlett's exams, we decided to have a dad and daughter cinema trip this last Friday night yep. as it's one of the few things that we agree is fabulous. I suggested Avengers. Scarlett suggested I Feel Pretty. So we compromised and we went to see I Feel Pretty. <laughs> I can see that coming. Classic parental <laughs> compromise, that is. The screening was 70% full with mainly female patrons who were all very code compliant. Whilst this movie is not brilliant and the script and gags could have definitely been tightened up, both Scarlett and I really enjoyed it and judging by the laughter, so did the other customers. The film easily passed the six-laugh test, also passed the Bechtel test, obviously. Yeah. It was great to see a movie slamming the fashion and beauty industries and focusing on the importance of feeling free to be who you want to be. Amy Schumer's confidence after the transformation is both fun and magnetic. At the end of the movie, I asked Scarlett what the message was and she said, it's not important what you look like, who you really are inside is what really matters. Yeah. Be confident and don't insert birdsong here, on your friends. A great message for all ages and genders. Uh, thank you, Adam. And this from Claire. So I saw I Feel Pretty last weekend. I was dragged against my will, only going because it's polite to be sociable. I'm not a fan of Amy Schumer. In fact, she generally irritates the life out of me. However, I laughed a lot. Uh, a lot. A real lot. Okay. I could relate to a lot of what her character was going, going through as a single woman in her 30s. No, it's not life-changing or a classic I'll be watching in 10 years, but myself and my two friends had a jolly good time watching it. Five fruity cocktails out of five. (laughs) Well, I mean, I like the idea of what the message of the film is, and I, I, I just wish I'd liked the film more. However, it's very encouraging that we've had quite a, few, a lot of correspondence from people who have been to see it and have taken away that message that it's not, you know... it. it it's it's all to do with how you feel about yourself that matters, which is, as you rightly say, an empowering message. So if if the film is is working on that level, great. I just and I think you felt the same way. I wanted it to be funnier. Sherlock Gnomes is at three. I wanted it to be a lot funnier, and I'm still not understanding. I'm going to do that gag every week that it's in the top ten. Avengers: Infinity War 
is it number two? It's very, very big. And if you're very, very invested in the Avengers, it's very, very powerful. I'm not very, very invested in the Avengers. So I thought it was fine, but very, very long. Deadpool 2 is the UK's number one. <sighs> so, uh, shall I go first? Yeah, you go first. Andy Bradshaw. I watched Deadpool 2. Deadpool 2. Deadpool 2, <laughs> as it might be known as, uh, yesterday morning with some trepidation after Mark's review, and I've come away bewildered. Okay. Did Mark accidentally go and see a screening of Green Lantern? Because the film I watched That's very good. was incredibly funny. It's not as good as Deadpool, and I thought up until the icebox it was pretty up and down. But from when they started putting X-Force together, I don't think I stopped smiling, giggling, full-on belly laughing or biting on my knuckles to try and stop laughing at some horrible fate happening to someone or other. Uh, at one point, the whole cinema, about 20 of us, were gasping for air. Was it the same as Deadpool? No, but then if it was, Mark would have complained it was just rehashing the same story and jokes. He took on the issue with sequels and satirised them incredibly well. I fear, I fear, Mark, that this might be this year's dread for you. Uh, Ollie says, just listened to last week's rave reviews of Deadpool 2 from listeners with disbelief. Similar to Mark, I was a big fan of the first one. The film was incredibly frustrating to watch as it felt like it had been written in two days by simply putting the five jokes that worked in the first film in a bucket, picking them out at random and repeating them until the, uh, they hit the page limit. The story they tried to hang on the film did not work for the characters and it was a real shame to see the kid from Hunt for the Wilder People in such a disappointing film. Right. Um, and that uh, email headline is worst film this year. Virginia Thorne from Seaford by the sea. I usually resonate with Mark's opinions and certainly follow his recommendations to seek out films. I might not otherwise uh, have seen loads of stuff. So having had a thoroughly delightful experience watching the new Deadpool 2, I excitedly clicked play on this part of the podcast, which I'd saved for my bedtime listening. In horror, I was greeted with Mark's words, very, very disappointing. I cried out, what film have you been watching, man? The very next day, I introduced my boyfriend to Deadpool 2 in a far less packed and raucous cinema than I'd ex experienced the night before, and this affected my viewing enjoyment. I didn't laugh as heartily at all the jokes, although I still loved the film, so I wondered whether Mark's viewing had taken place in the relatively dry atmosphere of a semi-deserted, plush Soho screening room. Almost certainly, yes. Well, th th there's an interesting thing that I did a, a blog with Jack Howard, who is uh, a, a, you know, a film fan and film critic who I like very much, and uh, he's a big fan of the show, incidentally. Says hi to you. Oh, and hi, Jack. Thank you. Not hi, Jack, but, you know, yeah. hello to Jack. Hi, Jack. And it's a, it's a source of some mirth that every time I mention him, I, you usually go, who's he? And I have to explain, despite the fact that I have explained this a million times. I am, I, I'm merely speaking on behalf of the audience Thank who you. are equally baffled. OK, they're not, but there we go. Anyway, so, Jack, I, I, I saw it and I came out of it. And I did indeed see it in a plush Soho screening room, although I think the work was fine. And I, and I really was disappointed. I thought it was just, it was like, you know, comedy plus money equals less comedy. And uh, I thought it was trying much too hard to, you know, to be zany in a way. That, I mean, the, 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 the problem with the first film was it was a more corporate version of Kick-Ass. And the problem with the second version was it wasn't quite Kick-Ass 2, but it was kind of going towards that way. But Jack had really, really enjoyed it. And I said, OK, well, what, under what circumstances did you see it? And Jack then admitted that he saw it under circumstances where pack screening, everybody else enjoyed it, which they had plied them with alcohol in the first place. So I saw it in the afternoon, you know, with a cup of coffee, and uh, and a stuffy and, and I was disappointed. And he saw it in the evening, plied with alcohol, and uh, enjoyed it very much. The only thing I would say is I very much enjoyed the first Kickass, and I saw that in exactly the same screening room at exactly the same time spot under exactly the same circumstances with almost exactly the same crowd, and I really enjoyed it. 
so a couple more points before you do a review. Yes. Uh, an email from, it's my f- uh, favourite name of the day, Phoebe Arslana Gitch Wakefield. Wow. Thank you, Phoebe. Uh, I left this, and she starts it, Dear Negasonic Teenage Warhead and Shatterstar. Okay, very good. I just love that straight away. I left the cinema in a dizzy state of euphoria, babbling happily to my friends. I've never taken mood-altering drugs, but I imagine that's what this film (laughs) made made me feel like. Anyway, so she, she loved it. And just one other point, Stella. Stella Greth, I think this is. My daughter and husband live in Goa in India. Last week they went to see Deadpool 2. In the audience were two nuns. My daughter said, is this film really suitable for nuns? Uh, The answer to that apparently is yes. They seemed to thoroughly enjoy it and laughed in all the right places. Excellent. Uh, Say hello to Jason from Stella Greta or Greta. Anyway, Stella, I appreciate that. Thank you very much indeed for that unique uh, observation. That's like, that's, that's like the famous uh, anecdote about Sir John Gielgud following two old ladies into a New York screening of Caligula, which he had described as my first pornographic feature. And he, said, he thought, oh, my word, they're just coming along because they've got stars in it. And then they won't they know what it is. And he said, I must. So he sat behind them. And he said they seemed to really enjoy the film with all the stuff that was going on. And as they were walking up the aisle, one of them turned to the other and said, well, that was worth every cent. That's excellent. I, I just I, I just love the idea of you would be put... If you're going to see Deadpool 2 and you're having a great night out and there yeah. are two nuns on the front row, you are going to think, I hope they like that because I don't know if they know what they're going to come and see. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's 2.26. This is Five Live. Ron Howard, the other side of the news and sport. Mark has a review for Okay, so there's this documentary called The Rape of Reese Taylor, which is a really powerful documentary by Nancy Bielski about a case of a young African woman who was kidnapped and raped uh, by a gang of white Alabama boys in 1944. She was working walking home from church she was uh she was kidnapped um there were witnesses people knew who the perpetrators were they were clearly identifiable and uh essentially the police having learned of the case did very little listened to the stories of her being a prostitute just let the case lie and then the NAACP became involved Rosa Parks became involved and agitated for the case but it still wasn't taken seriously it's a really really powerful documentary obviously very harrowing but brilliantly contextualized and really important and it includes interviews with those close to the case here's a clip my daddy would tell us tell us don't be afraid there's nobody's gonna hurt you long as i'm living nobody's going to hurt you He loved his family to death. Oh, he loved his family. I believe that's the reason he didn't do anything to try to get revenge against them boys because uh, he felt that he had to still lie to protect us. One day we were fishing and he told me, he said, you know, I could have got five of those guys at one night. I said, what guy? says the guy that raped my daughter. The thing about the documentary, at one point somebody says it had nothing to do with facts and everything to do with colour. And the film uh, flags up a number of key issues. Firstly, the way in which African-Americans were basically still seen as property, the legacy of slavery, which still defined the way in which, you know, uh, white men saw them as, uh, you know, as property. As uh, At one point, it's actually talking about um, not seeing them as human beings, which is really, really alarming, but very, very well expressed. Secondly, that women are at the cutting edge of struggle and uh, the way in which throughout the history of change that has, you know, very, very often been the case. Thirdly, the importance 
of the black press, recording crimes and events like this and making official records of them so they were not just seen as stories and rumours that could be dismissed as somehow being exaggerated. The uh, importance of the NWACP and Rosa Parks. And as I said, the story is is really harrowing, but it contextualises it within the story of the civil rights movement and within the story of how individual protests came together to become this enormously important movement about which we've seen, you know, feature films and, you know, it's a subject which is often now uh, referred to in cinema and there have been some very good feature films about the civil rights movement in the last few years. But this is a very, very powerful documentary telling its story very well, very sensitively, but it is harrowing. There's no question about it's harrowing, but it's done with a very clear purpose of, of putting this story in context, explaining why it is a, an important part of a, of a wider struggle, the acknowledgement of this terrible crime and the acknowledgement that this terrible crime had been completely overlooked by an establishment that didn't see any point in investigating it. It's called The Rape of Reese Taylor and it is a very fine and very powerful piece of work. And a cinematic piece of work? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's worth going to the cinema to see it. It's worth seeing it under under any circumstances. To be honest, it's uh, the, yes, I think so. Okay. For the next twenty minutes or so, we're going to be talking Solo, a Star Wars story. Lots of people very very excited about it. A lot of people going to the midnight's uh, screenings, sending us lots of reviews. You have a whole stack of reviews. If you've seen it, it's mayo at bbc.co.uk. You ready to go, Mark? I'm very ready to go. Okay, so you're going to hear from Ron Howard in just a second. First of all, a clip. From the movie featuring Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian and Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. The seat taken. Nobody's in the seat that I ain't taken, friend. So this is, uh, Sabak? Sabak. Sabak. Got it. You played before? A couple times, yeah. Captain Lando Calrissian. Han Solo. Looks like you're uh, having a good day. I'm a lucky guy. Can I ask you a question, Captain Calrissian? Anything, Han. It's Han, but that's okay. I heard a uh, story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. And that is obviously a clip from Solo, a Star Wars story. Delighted to say it's director Ron Howard is here. Hello, Ron. How are you? I'm well. Very nice to see you Good again. Good to see you too. And uh, the last time I saw you, you were in Abbey Road with your friends Paul and Ringo. That was quite <laughs> sad. That was memorable. <laughs> that was quite... And I, I apologise for spending more time talking to them than I did to oh, you Lord. at the time. I, I, I tried to shut up and just listen. You know, right before that interview started, um, we were sitting there and it's, it's Paul in the middle, it's Ringo on his left... Yep. And it's me, and the and uh, and and Paul and Ringo are sort of saying, "Hmm, have we been back here together since the day? No, no, I guess we haven't been in this room together, have we?" And they just recognized that they hadn't been in Studio Two together wow. since they'd last recorded there. So you were the, for that moment, you were just a fan. Oh man, was I? <laughs> was I? Yeah. Uh, anyway, that was the that, that was one. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with Solo, no, 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 a Star no, no, Wars no. story. No, 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 no. Uh, no but it was. I felt. Look, I felt a similar pressure. I mean, when I took on that that challenge. I'm at a point in my life where I'm just really enjoying a lot, you know, sort of taking some chances and experimenting, and and uh, um, and 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 I I sort of leapt into the Beatles documentary, and thinking, yeah, this will be great. I'll learn something. This will be very interesting. A, ch- a chance to meet those guys, and suddenly I realized that, of course, this is not just another documentary. It's the Beatles, and in a similar way, I found myself kind of lurching 
into Star Wars. There were previous directors. There were creative differences. Suddenly, they were looking for someone else. I, I, knew, I knew Kathy Kennedy well. She, you know, wondered if I'd join. And, and after reading the script and really liking it, I said, what the hell? I'm going to throw myself into this. This will be a fascinating sort of creative experiment and experience, I'm sure. I don't know if it will be pleasant or unpleasant, but yeah. it'll be interesting. And I did. And, of course, immediately I realized, oh, this is, this is, like, this is like doing the Beatles documentary. This, this, the, of course, this is not just a movie. This is, this is a Star Wars movie. Yeah. And, um, and I wound up having a lot of fun with it. So Kathy Kennedy, who you mentioned, she it was her responsibility. So she decides who directs these movies. Well, along with the studio and, yeah. and her colleagues. Okay, so it's Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. They, as you say, created differences. Uh, these things happen. But have, has that ever happened before? Have you ever come in kind of like halfway through a project and never. thought, right, how can I? Never. It's never even happened with any of our projects at Imagine uh, Entertainment. Uh, you know, Brian Grazer and I have worked on many movies together uh, and through our company. And television shows. And it's a very unfortunate situation. You know, regrettable, a shame. Those guys are great. They were incredibly supportive of me coming in. It honestly, it honestly was kind of like a, you know, a divorce or something. You know, it, and I was immediately grateful for so many of the things that had been begun and and some of the choices uh, that I was uh, inheriting, including a, a great cast. But I was also excited about being able to come in with objectivity and creatively uh, apply myself. And I, I felt like I was able to contribute a lot more than I even expected I would. Did you have doubts? I mean, when it was presented to you, were, were there voices in your head saying, mm, are you yes, sure about strong this? strong Mostly no. I don't want to replace it. But by the way, I like these guys. I know them. Yeah. I respect them. I didn't want to be in that situation. It, that's the Lego movie is that? Yeah, well, yeah, and, and, and 21 Jump Street. And, you know, they're just well-regarded. If, if Imagine Entertainment could work with them at any moment, Moment, we would drop everything. I mean, that's kind of how everybody feels about them. But here was this circumstance. And so uh, I was asked to read the script, and I said, sure, I'll do that. And it really hooked me because Larry Kasdan, this is the fourth time he's written for Han Solo. And uh, it's the fourth of the Star Wars movies. He also wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was uh, you know, a singular adventure about a kind of rascally uh, he, knows, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> and he and his son, John, uh, who's a huge Star Wars fan and a very funny guy and really gets it, had written something that was, I thought, entertaining. It answered a lot of the questions one might have about what could the events have been that would have shaped young Han Solo and what are the relationships and how did they impact him. It answered those questions in ways that were satisfying and seemed logical, if you can use the word logical as it relates to Star Wars, which you can because it does feel like a real world. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, but it was surprising. And I thought the scenes were good. And I thought for me as a director, not only did it have the fun action opportunities and all that to offer audiences and the imagination that goes with it, but the relationships really were interesting. And, um, and these, these sort of combinations of individuals who are all yearning somehow to gain some level of freedom, you know, to throw off their oppressors. It made for some good mm. acting scenes that so I enjoyed it, directing. So it's a, sta- so it's a standalone uh, film, but it, yeah. it, 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 it fits in the Star Wars universe, because, and this comes as like the earliest of them. So we're, this is as the Empire is gradually taking over. Well, it's, it's sort of between 1, 2, and 3 and before yes, the New Hope. Yeah. Sorry, and, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but those who love the canon, 
certainly know all about that too. So, so it was, it was, uh, you know, I thought a really thoughtful creation and yet, you know, I definitely had ideas. I was stimulated by these characters. By the way, the pleasant surprise for me was how fun it was to stage these cool action scenes. The action I've done in recent years, whether it's Heart of the Sea or Rush, has been very, very grounded in mm-hmm. the physics of our world and total reality and authenticity. And this was this is a chance to play. And uh, what a great, you know, our stunt team and the, the, you know, the obviously the production designers and the visual effects designers. It was a really a stimulating uh, collaboration. And it is enormous fun to watch. But I wonder if you can distill this in, in, into a few words. There's a particular tone to a Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. And you know it when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. But I can't quite write it down. You know, you know if it's right, you know if it's wrong. So can you well, I describe be, it? I had never really analyzed it as a fan, but of course when I was thrown into directing it, it came very clear to me. And not every Star Wars film sports the same tone. I mean, this movie, it's not a war movie. And it doesn't have the religion of the Force in it because it precedes Han's exposure to mm. all of that. But it does have this in common with the other movies. It's swashbuckling. And the, the movement and the action has to have that kind of flair. There's humor wherever possible, but it's not jokey. It's life and death. With Star Wars, J.J. Abrams tipped me off to this, in fact. He said that he believed that every decision they make is a life or death one, and they have to take it that seriously. I agreed with that. And then there are these themes. In this case, it's not political exactly, except there is this oppression. Uh, you know, they're living in this lawless corner of the galaxy, and, and Han Solo is sort of, you know, struggling for his freedom as a young man would, you know, with that kind of spirit and recklessness. But there are other characters going through that, a similar kind of a challenge in their lives. And that's relatable on a human level. So with Star Wars, what's interesting is that all of these entertainment values are generally pressed together. It's a little bit like three-dimensional chess when you're directing it. And uh, when I worked for George Lucas doing Willow, he used to talk about simultaneity in storytelling. What's that word again? Simultaneity. That's not a word, even I, if George Lucas said I, it. I, well, it, it, he invented it um, <laughs> and coined it then. But it does sort of uh, describe a certain kind of storytelling where there's just a lot going on all at once. And I think we that's why we go see him more than once yeah. because there's this density of the way the, the way his story entertains you. And didn't George Lucas visit the set, I think? He, he did. Was. He did. He came to visit the first day that I was shooting. And it was a two-person scene. It was between Amelia Clark, Kira, and Alden Ehrenreich, Han Solo. And it was kind of a fun, sparky, sort of romantic, little sexy, funny scene. And in it, uh, she's sort of holding this one of Lando Calrissian's cloaks. <laughs> he's got and, a lot of cloaks. He's got a lot of cloaks. And uh, Han takes it. And, you know, the direction was to just, he hangs it up. He takes it from her and kind of hangs it up in, uh, on the wall. And, uh, and George at one point said, Han wouldn't, he wouldn't hang it up. He wouldn't bother. He'd just throw it over his shoulder. And George acted out the behavior. And for a second, he had that sort of bravado and that sort of swagger, which he doesn't in life. That's not the kind of person he is. I thought it was great, but it echoed something that Harrison Ford had told me. I called Harrison when I came in on this to just to understand the subtext of the character a little bit better and some of the complexity of the character. And he said, well, you know, I didn't invent the character. George Lucas did. Uh, You know, I played him. Now it's Alden's time to find, you know, his own version. So is it fair to say George Lucas directed a little bit of this film? He directed <laughs> He directed a moment. He definitely did. I just want to mention Alden Ehrenreich as our young Han Solo. I first saw him in Hail Caesar. I don't think I've seen him in anything before that. I thought he was terrific in that. It was almost like he was born to play this role, though. The casting 
casting for this is genius. He just is the young Harrison Ford. He is the young Han Solo. He has the swagger. I've got English ears, so I'm not sure about the accent, but that sounded perfect to me. He's got the smile. He has the smirk. He has well, everything. he's, he's a very thoughtful actor. He's a real student of the medium and a very talented. And, and he, he's, he's been one of these guys that sort of everybody uh, has known would break through eventually because he's, uh, you know, he's very gifted. He's very charismatic, great work ethic. And, you know, he, he threw himself into this opportunity entirely. And he really, he really loved it, you know, especially as the movie evolves and he begins to to be a little bit less of the young, sort of yearning Han Solo and just a little bit more. He's finding his stride in this sort of criminal world. And uh, he really enjoyed it. And Harrison Ford was so complimentary to me about what Alden did when he, when he saw the movie. It was, really, it was really kind of touching. Do you find yourself quite nervous in moments like that? I mean, the fans are one thing. The, audio, the box office is another. But knowing that Harrison goes, yeah, that's fine. That yeah. Was- well, you brace yourself. You know, with all the rationalizations, which if they don't like it, well, then they just couldn't they couldn't disconnect from it. Or, but it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. And Harrison was really uh, uh, so positive about the movie too. And George Lucas, incredibly supportive, and really liked it. So and, that made me feel good. And just back on the subject of George, you must have. I mean, maybe when he visited on your first day, have gone back to that day in 1972 when you were doing American Graffiti and he's directing and you're in it. Yeah. And he, didn't he, like in the middle of the night and you're in the diner and he says, I'm working on this. Well, he didn't volunteer it because he doesn't volunteer much. Uh, But I did finally say, do you know what you you want to do next? It was 3.30 in the morning. We were standing outside in front of the Mel's diner there. Exhausted probably. Freezing. And he said, well, I want to make a, a science fiction movie. And now at that time, science fiction was not cool at all. He said, uh, but I want to make a kind of swashbuckling one, you know, like Flash Gordon or, or something like that. But not Flash Gordon. It's new characters. Instead of those spaceships on wires where you see them bouncing along, you can tell it's fake. I want to use the realism that Stanley Kubrick showed we could do with 2001. But I want things to be fast. That's about all he said. Fast. I didn't. Th- I didn't think it sounded like a very good idea at that point. But I was. I, I, fortunately, I didn't say that. One final point, uh, Ron. You mentioned the father and son writers behind this. Just on a family, <coughs> family question. Um, your daughter Bryce Dallas Howard is on the show next week. Ah. Um, we're speaking to her for uh, Jurassic World, yeah. Fallen Kingdom. And I thought I'm just going to spring this on you now. I wonder if there's a question that I could put to her from you to surprise her. Oh wow! Okay, because obviously you know slightly more about. That. I do know. About I do know. Uh, I do know quite a bit. I would say. Um, uh, Are we going to play this to her? If you okay. can think of something. Hey Bryce, I, I wonder if you can describe what you've learned from the two different directors of the Jurassic movies uh, that you've worked with. I know you're interested in directing and you're moving moving into that career. And specifically, anything that you picked up on that you know that you're going to want to that you're going to want to use when you move behind the camera. Hey, that's a good question. <laughs> I know it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. <laughs> Ron, thank you so much for uh, uh, for spending some time with us. What's uh, what's caught your attention next? What are you going to be working on? Well, I'm developing a number of things, and I don't know what I'm going to be directing next. Uh, we're also, Imagine Entertainment is growing as a as a company. Brian Grazer and I are. You know, really excited about the various directions that we're moving into, including a new program that's going to, I, I, we, we think, really energize 
independent uh, project development for movies, television, you know, any, any kind of narrative content. And uh, we've got the backing for that now, and we're going to be launching that in the fall, our first version of that. So excited about that. I'm working on a few interesting projects ba- based on books. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is a very interesting sort of cultural look at America. Um, and, and yet it's a great memoir. I think that's, that's an interesting one. A, a Neil Gaiman book called a graveyard book he's a great guy he's, a, he's so creative what a brain and we, i've been working for quite a while to try to adapt this uh into a movie for disney and uh you know it's it's ambitious but uh, it would be a dream come true if i could get to make that movie ron always a pleasure thank you so much for coming in thanks always a pleasure as Ron Howard talking about Solo, a Star Wars story, the uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt interview is actually in two weeks' time. It's not next week, but uh, we will put that Ron Howard question to his daughter, Bryce Dallas Howard, in uh, in two weeks. Uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, you've heard from Ron Howard. Now you hear from Mark. Ron Howard said in that interview that he, when he was speaking to George Lucas, he saying, what do you want to do next? And George Lucas said, well, I want to do a science fiction film, but, you know, I want to do science fiction. And the, the phrase that Ron Howard used, like swashbuckling science fiction, like going back to the, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers serials, but with better special effects. And, of course, you know, added samurai movies thrown in. And what you have here, to some extent, is like one of those, you know, old swashbuckling romps with better special effects, albeit minus the samurais, which is, I think, a, a crucial omission. So as we said before, we started out with uh, Lord and Miller, who left the project very, very, you know, long way into it. I mean, well over halfway into it. Um, everything stopped. They brought on Ron Howard. The reports say that he reshot up to 70% of it. No one's quite certain. But it's a, you know, it's a major thing to do that that far down the line on a movie this big. We do know that, you know, previous Star Wars movies have had problems we know that rogue one had a trouble production but it is still a very very big deal and the first thing to say is it's it's pretty surprising that with that kind of troubled history the film actually hangs together as much as it did if you if you saw it without knowing that production history i don't think you'd think this looks like some kind of frankenstein job in which it's been bolted together does it does have a kind of coherence that said it's you know it's a fairly lightweight coherence old narenreich is a very snappy bit of casting i mean he, he absolutely does as you said in that interview have that sense of being the young Harrison Ford. He is the young Han Solo. You can see him growing into the Harrison Ford character, although it is disappointing that at no point during any of the uh, difficult things he has to do that, that they never managed to work in would that it was so simple. But, but I understand, obviously. Would that have been do. meta? Is that the right It thing? would have been so meta. And, you know, the central relationship between, you know, him and Chewbacca is kind of nicely done. It's probably the film's strongest suit. Their first meeting is kind of, you know, it's entertaining and affectionate. And also the stuff about him and and the Millennium Falcon and, you know, seeing the Millennium Falcon and wanting to own the Millennium Falcon, that sort of, you know, and the, the, the lust to be a part, all that sort of stuff. So that's... You know, all that stuff is nicely done. Donald Glover is, has, a, has a lot of fun as Lando Calrissian, and I would like to see more of him. Actually, that's a, you know, so there, that there is talk of him having his own spin-off. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. sure. There's I th- there's basically talk of every piece of furniture in a Star Wars movie having its own spin-off, and in a way, that's kind of the problem. Firstly. There, I am starting to feel that, as you know, Luke said, they're coming in too fast. You know, there was a there. It was six months ago, or whatever, that we were talking about Last Jedi, 
And it it does seem to me that we're now getting to the point that we're going to be looking at a Star Wars movie in the past in which Luke fell asleep and he woke up seven hours later. But what happened in those seven hours? Well, here's a spin-off sequence to tell you. I mean, I am I'm starting to think enough. And as somebody who who didn't you know, didn't love the Star Wars movies the first time around and was very, very underwhelmed by the prequels and who really got it when The Force Awakens happened. And I very much like Rogue One. As you know, I like Last Jedi, which is hated by some people. But it was there was a bit of me that felt, okay, fine, but I think you are starting to overload us. The second thing is that um, there's not a massive amount of jeopardy um, I know that Ron Howard was saying that everything that happens in the Star Wars universe is a kind of life and death situation. It isn't really. I mean, with kind of key, because of where you are in the narrative, you kind of know where you're going. In the case of in the case of Rogue One, that it felt to me that there was a lot more at stake, that there was a lot more to be lost, there was a lot more a chance for it to kind of break out and do something darker and to be that kind of war movie. Although, as I said, I mean, I know that Rogue One had a troubled production history as well, but I did feel whilst watching it that those Dirty Dozen comparisons kind of made sense. I thought in the case of this that it, whilst it was on, it was fine, it zipped around quite pleasantly. Paul Bettany is absolutely scene-stealing, and actually from the Ron Howard point of view, the, it's the Ron Howard-Paul Bettany axis, which is the... Because, you know, obviously Ron Howard's worked with Paul Bettany many times before, and there's a story that Paul Bettany texted him and said, I wonder whether you've ever found yourself sitting in a room wondering why you've never been in a Star Wars movie. You know, any suggestions? And Ron Howard apparently sent, sent him back a message saying, hang on, give me a couple of days. Wow. And of course... Well, that worked well. Yeah, and Bettany is brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant because he's... I mean, for a start, as you know, he's one of my favourite actors, and he gets the chance to play fiendishness. He gets the chance to play a, a character who he's described as somebody who is very good at inflicting pain and likes doing what he's good at. Sorry, you were about to say something. No, I was just saying, you know, he gets far more opportunity to to show what he can do than he does in Marvel. You yes, know, exactly. He's a little bit limited and feeble. Yeah, exactly. And I, I did really feel that he brought a kind of gangstery swagger to those scenes. I mean, that character started off being a com- completely different character. And actually, once they started doing the reshoots, then Bettany comes in. So, I mean, again, the, the amount of rejigging of the world of that film does seem to be pretty substantial. And I did really enjoy the Paul Bettany stuff. As far as all the, you know, the speed and the and the action sequences, and essentially it's got, it's 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 the origin story wrapped around a heist movie. And the heist is that they have to get this, you know, they're, 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 they're searching for a volatile energy substance and there's a job and it's going to be complicated and things are going to go right, things are going to go wrong, blah, 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 blah. That kind of gives it a narrative thrust, but that's actually not what's really important. What's really important is what you want, the stuff, become, you know, the relationships between the characters that you know and the relationships between the characters that, you know, perhaps filling in a gap. So overall, I think this, I think it was... Fun enough, but unessential. I think it lacked any great deal of jeopardy. I thought I I could have lived without it, but whilst it was on, it was perfectly fine. I'm not entirely sure that I'm up for a whole swathe. Tough luck. Of these tough luck, because as you say, coming soon to a cinema near you, that lamp that appeared in episode four, how did it get there? Oliver Bailey, uh, we'll do all the correspondence after the news. I have to pull you up on Simon's statement that simultaneity or simultaneity, as Ron said it, uh, isn't, a is, isn't a word. It or is. Or so it was coined by George Lucas. <laughs> it's existed since 1651, uh, in which year Culverwell told us in his elegant disc Light of Nature that there's no succession in God, no premises or conclusions. There's a complete simultaneity in all his knowledge. 
Anyway, tinkety-tonk with all the trimmings, your Stockport correspondent, Oliver Bailey. So I stand corrected. Simultaneity is allowed in. Uh, in the next hour, we will get to your correspondence on Solo, a Star Wars story. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Can I, can I just say, just before we go, because I, I was just reviewing Solo, a Star Wars story before the news break, there is the most chubby hmm moment in that film. Remind me what that means. Okay, so this was a, a, a term that was coined by John Ronson to mean the moment in movies in which very clumsily the movie does the thing that it's been building up to doing. And the examples that he always used were like that moment in The Doors when they're trying to write, you know, uh, Light My Fire. And he goes, duh, 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 duh. oh, hang about a minute. Do, do, uh, just go out a minute. And as they go out, you hear, duh, 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 Or, you know, the, the, specifically the moment in the, the Karen Carpenter story on television in which there is a, a, a newspaper report that her brother reads to her and she goes, chubby, hmm. And it's suddenly, you know, it's meant to sort of explain the whole character. Well, there is the most honking moment of that in... Uh, in so in uh, Solo, a Star Wars adventure, which is the moment that Han Solo is trying to get through customs or passport control or whatever it is, and the guy says, "What's your name?" and he says, "Han," and he says, "Han who?" And he says, "Just Han." And he said, "Well, who are your people?" and he says, "I don't have people," and the guy goes, "Hmm," and then writes something on his pad. It was just like honk. I quite like honk. It. I quite like. I enjoyed the honk. <laughs> Uh, Graham Jowett, um, my Star Wars obsessed six-year-old son Seth is desperate to see Solo, not least to see what his pursuit hero Chewbacca got up to in his formative years. He's seen A New Hope and more recently Empire Strikes Back without any issues. It's classified 12A. The BBFC's insight section does not seem to suggest anything more perilous than what's in Empire Strikes Back, apart from slightly rude name for bottom. But I'd like to have your view on this. Uh, so Yeah, it's, it's, it's on the lighter side of the Star Wars Universe, isn't it? Yes, I think it's quite. Li- um, yeah, it, it's sort of. I would imagine it's PG slash twelve A rather yeah. than. It ain't Rogue One. No, exactly. Know. And I think the key thing in that interview is that runs it. It's not a war film. No, it's not a war film. And because it's not a war film, I think that would. It's probably a heist. Be it's a heist movie. It's a. It's it's almost a caper. Chris Riley in Twyford. Uh, last night I visited my local showcase deluxe in Reading for a, a viewing of Solo. I went in with low expectations and these were largely met. Sure, it passed the six laugh test. This was matched by the number of code stretching. Oh, for goodness sakes, muttered (laughs) my breath. After all the hype and the drama of the exchange of directors, I'm still not quite sure what the point of this film is. It feels like it was dreamt up by the Disney marketing department. When we first meet Han Solo in episode four, he's in a dive bar. No one ever wondered how someone ended up in a dive bar. Lando Calrissian was a smuggler and a gambler and ended up governor of his own planet. I want to know that story. And on the basis of Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's performances, which are worth the entrance fee alone, that would have been a far more interesting and entertaining film. Having slept on it, I have many more things about this film I want to say, but considering the volume of emails you're likely to get about Sasswuss, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> As no one is calling. I think you, actually lots of people are in are the emails. Oh, okay, I, I think so- I enjoyed it, but only if I don't really think about it. Yes. Th- and for me, that's not quite enough for a That, that in a way, that sums it up. You, 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 I think I enjoyed it if I don't really think about James it. James Pierce, uh, I took my boys, Ollie, aged 11, and Alex, 9, to a surprisingly quiet 5.45 p.m. showing of Sasswurst. Biggity boo, Mary Poppins. Last night at the Odeon Tunbridge Wells. Beforehand, I was slightly concerned about how coherent the film 
would be given the fairly late directorial switch yeah. from Lord Miller to Ron Howard and how heavy the weight of the Star Wars universe would lie on it. I'd also seen some decidedly varied reviews. However, I need not have worried. The film showed real pacing and wit with great performances from Alden Ehrenreich, Emilia Clarke and Danny Glover. The always reliable Woody Harrelson played Woody Harrelson with a laser gun and the surprise scene stealer was Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the opinionated droid L3. My boys gave it 10 out of 10, that's Ollie, and 9.9 out of 10 for Alex. He always likes to leave room for a little improvement. Harry from Gerard's Cross. Don't just say Donald Glover. Sorry. Oh, well, yeah. Yes. It said Danny Glover. I know, no, but I'm just saying Very Donald. Yeah. Harry from Gerard's Cross. Having been in attendance for the midnight release, the last three Star Wars films at the BFI, was hotly anticipating Solo. Star Wars story, unfortunately, as time grew closer to its release date, my two chums pulled out. Skullduggery. Anyhow, <laughs> I still went on my own. Some cannot praise the film enough, as well as enriching the ever-expanding universe of Star Wars. It brought to the table fresh ideas and themes, drawing inspiration from heist and Western films. It's a brilliant starting point for anyone who is unsure about diving into the franchise and gives a delightful, if slightly unrequired, backstory to the universe's most lovable rogue. Ron Howard perfected the pace uh, which all other Star Wars films should aspire to. Alden was a top-notch choice and look forward to him uh, seeing him in future uh, epics. And uh, who's this... Uh, Adita from San Francisco just came out of the first showing of Solo as I write this I don't know what the general consensus on this film is yet but five months ago I left the midnight showing of a Star Wars film having really loved it only to wake up the following morning shocked to read that it had ruined everyone's childhood yes and can I just say we all remember that and and, and remember it in exactly that same way so thank you so much for for writing that so eloquently but all those people were wrong and we were right (laughs) perhaps that will be the case again tomorrow morning although I truly hope not I don't know how they did it, but despite all the the behind-the-scenes creative issues and mid-production director change, they've managed to make a film that brought me pure joy. The film, most importantly, has interesting rounded characters with dynamic relationships. It's also very funny, visually stunning, full of twists until the very end. As for the freshly recast leads, Alden Ehrenreich is Roger Moore to Harrison Ford's Sean Connery. In other words, (laughs) he is perfect. And so is Donald Glover as the self-obsessed, cape-flaunting Lando Calrissian. One more, Steve Manners. I've just got back from an earlier clock showing of Solo. Pleased to say it was a blast, which wonderfully recreates the sense of fun and adventure of episodes four, five and six. You could argue the plot was a little stretched and there were one too many set pieces, but overall it was a joy to spend time with these characters, especially Alden Ehrenreich's Han Solo, who is wonderful. And this film made me again think how great the prequels could and should have been. In summary, it's great fun. Just don't expect the plot to make sense. It's, it's, I think it is. I think it is. I think it is terrific fun, and you don't have to think about it too much. Okay, but you and I have talked about this before, and you said that you thought it was fun, but you also thought, "I'm um, enough." No, the enough is the enough is yours. They can make as many as they like. I'll go and see all of them. I thought I thought it it got a bit baggy halfway through, but I just thought okay. it was it it was. Uh, it's a lighter Star Wars film. I thought it benefited from, as Ron Howard said, not having the religion of the Force, not having the war story to tell, so you're just going along for the ride. And there were enough laughs and enough uh, fine set pieces to think, OK, I'm up for this. It is baggy. I mean, if if you're if it's if it's that light frothy cappuccino you know foam that you're talking about of a film, didn't you think there was there were sections in it when you think, yeah, OK, uh, how long how long is this going to take? Yeah, well, when I said it's a little bit, a little bit baggy, that was. Yeah, no, no, a... I know, I know, but I just, I, I'm, I, so what I'm, what I'm hearing from you, Simon, yes, yes, is that you thought it was fun, but you thought it was too long, and 
I mean, my my feeling absolutely is, you know, it was when Ron Howard was talking about, as I said, that thing with uh, with George Lucas saying I wanted to, you know, to get back to those, you know, the old serials. That's kind of in the spirit of. But the difference was that the originals had that welded around this this kind of emerging religion of the Force, which kind of gave it some heft. And this feels like the thing without the without the heft. It's it's an incidental. It's an incident, but it's good fun. So what I mean is, yeah, but so was the Star Wars, you know, holiday special. No, I think it's worth. Actually, it. that's not true. That it wasn't. No, I, I think because because I thought Alden yeah. Aaron Wright was so well cast. He is very well, and because cast. he nails the character, and because it is funny, there are some laugh out loud moments. I think go along, you know, go and see how they've managed to cast a young Han Solo who. Obviously, he's going to become Harrison Ford, but I can see him having more adventures of his own. So. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, so, so generally, you're sort of you're sort of inclined towards thumbs up. Yes, I and mean. I'm sort of waving a little bit, like, yeah, it's okay. I'm not sure I want you to do it again, but I'm, I'm seeing it again tonight. Oh, are you? Uh, with the uh, with with the Mayo Clan. So okay. We're okay. Gonna okay. Okay. It, so. It's yeah. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. You know. It's quarter past three, so thank heavens there's something else to talk about. Okay. Mind you, there are loads of there's loads of other things. There's loads of emails, and also, you know, if there's time, we'll come back to more solo Star Wars material. Okay, so let's rush through a few. Uh, Little Vampire, which is a German Dutch animation with voices by uh, US Brit Leeds. Um, this is based on the Angela Summers Bodenberg stories, which have we've seen before in the live action version, which I think was at two thousand, wasn't it? So uh, our heroes are, it's the inversion thing, our heroes are the vampires, their life is being threatened by uh, hunting humans led by uh, rookery. Um, family on vacation, they've got a son who believes in vampires, he's the same age as uh, the vampire child who is about to have his, you know, his 13th birthday, whatever, he's for the 300th time, which actually always reminds me of um, uh, let the right one in, you know, how old are you, how long have you been that age? Um, it's utterly innocuous fare. It sort of zips along at a reasonable pace. It's not very long, but it's hard to imagine that kids raised on the kind of, you know, Pixar films that we've seen recently. I mean, I I think we're in a golden age of animation at the moment. And if you later on in the program, we'll talk about the breadwinner. And I think when you've got things like Coco and, you know, you've got the absolutely brilliant stuff that's being done by Leica Studios and you've got amazing movies like The Red Turtle, which was this incredible, you know, cross-cultural animation, Dutch animator living in London, making a French-Belgian film with Japanese. When you've got those kind of things, you look at this latest version of Little Vampire and you go, "Mm, well, Comes and goes, although compared to another children's movie that's out this week, it is it is Citizen Kane. We will be coming to show dogs later on. Also out this week is uh, McKellen playing the part. Now, this is odd because it plays on Sunday. It doesn't open properly until next week, but it's got previews everywhere for Sunday, which is why some of the reviews are appearing now. I think that it'll also be spoken about on next week's show when it gets sort of wider release. Ian McKellen came on the programme last week, and it was just a lovely interview. You went to, I say he came on the programme, you went to his house. Yes. And uh, so the documentary is about his life, and it takes the form of a long interview with him. Um, it's not long, they did one a long interview with him, in which he looks back at his life from childhood, falling in love with the with theatre, going to college, um, setting up a company in which the actors chose the directors rather than the other way round, um, his sexuality, his political awakening, him becoming a sort of uh, somebody who was a, an activist. 
And he, as we get these reminiscences, this directed by Joe Stevenson, who made that brilliant indie film Chicken, which I absolutely loved. I think that's just such a great piece of work. And what he does is that during certain of the reminiscences, which are illustrated with extraordinary archive footage, uh, I mean, loads of archive that I, I haven't seen, I'm sure many people haven't seen before, also sort of clips from the stage and screen work, um, every now and then you'll get him telling a story and it will be it will be dramatised. It will sort of see a, a version of it. So at one point, for example, Scott Chambers plays the young McKellen auditioning for a for a role in college and we hear his voice but you see lip syncing so it's actually a, a technique not unlike that which was used in the arbor which i think is a really brilliant film and instantly i think still think i think scott chambers it, that i you know he, that kid is going to be a kid that young man is going to be huge he is such a good actor um but what i really liked about this was just how candid and affectionate it felt I mean, it really did feel like somebody speaking from the heart about their life with which they were, you know, they'd have, they had a fantastic life. There's a very funny bit towards the end when he says, this is turning into an obituary. He says, stop it. I don't want this to be an obituary. <laughs> it's like, because there's been all this sort of lovely reminiscence about his career. The moment in which he talks about how he broke into films and how Richard III was, was you know, was so important. But I just thought it was, it was like spending an evening with your, you know, somebody who was a great raconteur who was talking to you and as you were listening to them you were seeing you know the images of the life that they were talking about i th i thought it was really enchanting you loved it right yeah i mean he's uh, he's uh, i i don't know whether it's a wonderful cinema you know you were, we were talking earlier about a documentary that whether it was a good cinematic experience or not okay it's a fascinating interview i think if i had you know, my eight quid to go and spend at the local cinema. I w yeah, there's not many dog fights. No, but it's it, it's a lovely interview. He has so many stories to uh, to tell, and his voice. You know, as people commented last week, I could listen to his voice all day. Yeah, and it is. I mean, and also he talks about how he ch how he modulated and changed his voice at certain times. You know, because you know because he, he had the accent which he wanted to lose in order to you know somehow you know gain an RP accent and then he's saying well all accents are accents are all accents I mean I was I, I really enjoyed it I and I enjoyed it more than I expected to I I, I you know I expected it to just be like a you know just like a sort of a, a sit down reminiscent but I thought it was much more than what's that. it called again it's called McKellen playing the part that's exactly with right. a colon yes um here's a thing from Louise Danby we were talking earlier about uh, as we have done for a number of weeks about the hill on which you would die, the small yes. things that really annoy you. Earlier, we also heard about someone who was a small hill on which he was prepared to yodel because the film unexpectedly got something completely right. Um, <laughs> so this from uh, Louis, possibly Louis? Yeah, let's go with Louis Danby. I've never emailed the show before, but after recent viewing of the wonderful Coco, I felt it necessary to... Again, golden age of animation. I felt it... Coco. ...to share my experience. We're all familiar by now with the increasingly popular small hill I could die on. However, with Coco, I had a more small hill I didn't die on situation, so this is another hill to yodel on. Yes. Any musician watching a film involving musicians will notice that in most cases, the actors have clearly never held an instrument in their entire life. Yes, and there was... The, it's it, because of this that I was particularly surprised and impressed with the animation of the guitar playing in Coco. The characters were playing the right chords and plucking the right strings in complete synchronisation with the music. Yeah. I imagine this took a lot of research and time in the animating room, so I must take my hat off to all those involved. It's only a small detail, but one 
that made the experience so much easier and added to the delight of the rest of the film. I'm sure Mark can relate to this as a fellow musician. This, honestly, this this is, is there was a film, um, and I think it was the, the the I think the name of it was All the Mornings of the World, but I may be wrong. This was back in the 1980s when I was first writing for the NME, and it was a film that involved cello playing, and it drove me nuts because. <laughs> because all the cello playing on screen was completely unrelated to the to the, the you know the what what we were hearing and i i really got off my bike about it and i remember the distributors saying what, what is it with what you know seriously that's not what the film is about you know can you just not just ignore that and watch the rest of it? and the point was no i couldn't i found it so distracting it really bothered me and actually it's one of the things when i love the ruttles but the thing with um, Eric Idle playing the guitar the other way up, of course, you know he's a musician. But once you, when you start flipping it over the other way around, then it bothers me that it looks like he's not actually playing. So yes, it's something that and one of my favourite films of all time, which is Jeremy, in which he plays the cello really badly, and you hear this beautiful cello playing on the thing, and then you see him playing it, and it's so evidently not him playing. It. It's terrible. These three twenty-four. Did you say the other thing on that musicians thing is that there's there's often the thing they do around cutting around, particularly when people are playing the piano, cutting around hands. So you'll get like an over the piano shot of somebody, their arms moving up and down. You can't see their fingers yet, and then it cuts to a close up of somebody who's clearly a different person. It's like in Captain Scarlet, you know, when the puppets walk mm. around like that, and then they've got a close up of the hands rifling through things in drawers, and then it cuts back to Captain. In Scarlet, but it always bothers me because when they're playing the piano, they just think that vaguely waving your arms up and down either way is how you would play the piano. And they'll be playing a piece that's like literally going ding 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 in the middle of the keys, and they'll be going like that, like they're kind of working a bellows. You go, that's not how a piano works. I've got the Captain Scarlet drums banging around in my head now. Oh, really? Right at the very beginning. Go on, how's that? Good job. Bum 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 bum. That one. Captain Scarlet. 3.25 and before Mark sings any more, he'll review a film for you. The Breadwinner. This is from the studio in Kilkenny that brought us Secret of Kells and uh, Song of the Sea, adapted from Deborah Ellis's uh, young adult, children's young adults book, directed by Nora Toomey. And I think it's just wonderful. Um, It's set in Taliban-era Kabul around the turn of the century. We meet a young girl who is in the street selling goods with her father. He was a teacher by trade. He lost a leg uh, in the war with the Russians. They are struggling to get by. Material goods are evidently very, very scarce. But knowledge and learning and storytelling offer sustenance. And he is raising his daughters to understand the history of their country and the power of stories. So then what happens is that the father is arrested by the Taliban. And when he's arrested, the family now have it's her mother, her sister, her and her young baby brother. And they can't go out into the street to get food. Here's the clip. Let's continue your studies, all right? Yes, Papa. Now, what can you tell me about the Silk Road? The Silk Road? Papa, I can't remember about the Silk Road. Maybe if we think of it like a story, huh? Stories remain in our hearts even when all else is gone. Our people have always told stories. From our very beginning, when we were Parthia and Khorasan. A fractured land in the claws of the Hindu Kush mountains, scorched by the fiery eyes of the northern deserts. Black rubble earth against ice peaks, our land was the petrified skeleton of a monster. We were Oriana, the land of the noble and honorable. 
So he's teaching all this stuff to his family. Then he's arrested by the Taliban as a subversive for speaking back. And suddenly the household find themselves unable to eat because it's a mother, two daughters, and then a baby brother. And women are not allowed to leave the house unchaperoned. And there's apparently nothing they can do about this. So so Poana, our central character, cuts her hair, puts on the clothes of her deceased brother and ventures out into the markets disguised as a boy and discovers, you know, in that magic carpet, right, a whole new world. And suddenly she, she, what she's told as a fellow traveller says, when you're a boy, you can go anywhere you want. And the story is then about her attempt to look after the father. She becomes the, the breadwinner and also to get to her father in prison. And I thought it was a wonderful piece for a number of reasons. Firstly, the style of the animation is really interesting. The, the, the streets and the markets through which our, our heroine ventures are rendered really realistically. I mean, almost photorealistically sometimes, but also filtered through a kind of poetic haze. There's this thing called the honey glow of the of the of the light of the mornings, and it's beautifully done. But it has it's very very realistically rendered. The characters themselves, their faces are, are done quite simply, in which like a single line on a face can indicate you know sadness or tiredness or or, or anger. But they're in this very real landscape. Then when you have the story within the story, which is the storytelling, which tells us about the history of the country, but also conjures this parallel narrative to run alongside the the heroine's journey, which is a narrative of a young boy going up against a dreadful elephant king who has stolen the seeds from the village. That's all rendered in this kind of cutout animation, which is like these circling cutout forms. And the, the the two styles of animation are very, very distinct. You always know exactly where you are, in which world, but also they... They counterpoint each other rather beautifully, that one of them is kind of a fantastical history and the other is very much a realistic present day. And by bringing the two of them together, you get this sense of of mythology, but also of your contemporary politics and a very sort of you know down-to-earth realist feel. Some people have talked about, for example, the bicycle thieves as being a reference point, which I think is a good reference point. So you get that. You also have this wonderful score, which is by the Danas, by Michael and Jeff Dana, which mixes Eastern instrumentation with kind of Western orchestration to bring these two worlds together. On the one hand, you have the stuff which is in the streets, which is very, very sparse. Again, almost giving you a sense of a documentary feel. On the other hand, when you've got these storytelling sequences, much more lushly orchestrated, much sort of... a kind of weirdly wider palette. And again, those two things, that they're both delineated by and joined by the music. The film deals with some very dark material. I mean, you know, the father is taken away, he's imprisoned, there is, you know, there is death in this story. But it's told through the eyes of this young and very courageous girl. And weirdly enough, because it's seen through the eyes of that character, very dark material is kind of filtered for an audience of all ages. It's a 12A certificate film, and it's very specifically designed to be able to talk about these things to audiences of all ages and i really i really think it does it also has humor and you remember that thing that you know in the in the young humor and bravery are often partners they you know they they, they walk hand in hand um it's uh, executive produced by angelina jolie who apparently did much more than lend her name to the project she did actually was actually kind of guiding light in uh, many of the creative decisions it was nominated for oscar for best animated feature lost out to coco which we were just talking about before and again why i'm saying you know golden age of animation I've seen it three times and I've I've just been knocked out by it more each time. It's just 
wonderful. And it's called The Breadwinner and you really must see it. David Pentin, uh, on this email, I saw it uh, on Tuesday in Norwich. Uh, the film was engrossing, had wonderful animation using two different types, with one for the story being told by the yep. main character and another for the rest of the film, as you just mentioned. The story was beautifully told. I had not read the book prior to seeing the film and was very thought-provoking, deserves to be seen by a wide audience, though the screening I saw it in was quite small. So it's, is this going to have to fight its way, really? Yes, it will, because we're, we're in a, we, we are in a blockbuster market now in which... You know, Solo, a Star Wars adventure, will be playing in every screen up and down the land. But I think, therefore, it's all the more important for... Sorry if I get a bit militant. It's all a bit more important why we should concentrate as much energy on celebrating a film like The Breadwinner. Because wouldn't it be a shame if people... You know, if, it's, if, if it's playing in a cinema near you, you don't go and see it, you're going to miss a real treat. I think we've been told. Thank you. All right. Comrade. Uh, thank you. That's uh, Dave Penton's email. If you want to join in, it's mayo at bbc.co.uk. In the next half hour, Mark will be reviewing at least these films. Edie, Zama and Show Dogs. Which I'm looking forward to just from your tone of voice. Yeah. Show, show Dogs is better than No Dogs, or maybe it isn't. TV Movie of the Week. Uh, this week's list includes Sing Street, Bad Neighbours... Uh, That's uh, two different films, not Sing Street, Bad Neighbours. No, sometimes... It, sometimes <laughs> it sounds like a... So, so many odd phrases are stuck together with a semicolon. <laughs> Sing Street, Bad Neighbours. And it, are we saying Princess Mononoke? Yeah, well, Princess Mononoke. Well, yeah. which? Which are we saying? You can say whichever one you want, Simon. Oh. I don't think anyone's going to complain. And uh, Ponyo and the Past. Again, that's two. Yeah, Ponyo and the Past. Joe Jackson. In our house, it'll be Sing Street. My husband has a John Carney obsession. This, along with the sublime once, and my personal favourite begin again, are revisited often. The kids have been brainwashed with the soundtracks. Uh, Fergal Hogan, so easy this week. My old alma mater was Singe Street and played a major role in Sing Street, so that gets my yeah. nod. And I guess there should be no real competition for Mark either. Sing Street it is then. Still have the soundtrack on hard rotation on my fruit-based device and the closing dedication for Brothers Everywhere kills me every time I watch it. Uh, John McBrain, Goodfellas is one of my favourite films of all time. It's a masterfully crafted tour de force, but it's still not my film of the week. That honour goes to Sing Street, which I just loved. Uh, ben Sher, Ponyo, it's perfect. Mark will go for Sing Street, which is fine, but not as good as Ponyo. Ponyo, Ponyo. And don't put Princess Mononoke for, on for young kids. It's a tough watch and really nasty, unlike Ponyo, which is perfect. Uh, and Kathy Hart, I love Ponyo, as do my kids. My two girls love it too. We have the book... And I've read it countless times. My daughter has a soft toy of Ponyo as a fish. Our goldfish oh, wow. is actually named Ponyo. <laughs> anyway, I wouldn't vote for Ponyo. Was if my neighbour, uh, my neighbour Totoro, right. was put up against him. Anyway, what's the TV movie? Well, I, I love Ponyo, and I mean, the, the, I, I remember very clearly that before I saw Ponyo, asking Alan Jones about it, and him going Ponyo, Ponyo, and I couldn't figure out what he was doing. And then you see the film, and then it, it just gets absolutely stuck in your head. And I love Ponyo. I am. What so, is he doing? Well, he's singing the song because it, it's when you see the film, you do come out of it singing the song, and um, so I was going to go for just Sing Street because I I love Sing Street to pieces. I've spent a lifetime playing in, you know, often very rubbish school bands and college bands and all that kind of thing. And what Sing Street manages to do is to capture really brilliantly that sense of getting your mates from down the road to, you know, borrow a drum kit and learn how to play in a band and then make a rubbish video. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was really lovely. I really enjoyed it. I don't think it was seen by enough people when it came out. So I'm afraid it's going to be a double bill. 
which is going to be Sing Street and Ponyo, two films to put a song in your heart and a skip in your step. And when are they on, though? Uh, Ponyo is on Monday at 1.05 on Film 4. 105? 1.05... 1.05... AM, I think it's in the it's in the morning, isn't it? Yeah, it's one o five PM. No, one o five PM. What is that? That's it's one or the other. The one of one o five PM is that the, the middle afternoon. of the day or the, that's the, the afternoon. afternoon? This is pretty basic stuff. The AM is the morning, PM is the afternoon. Oh right, you say it like it's easy. But what if I was in Australia? It's still the same. AM is the morning, PM is the afternoon. Right, well, that's your story, and you're sticking to it. Correct. Sing Street is also on Film Four at nine PM. That's, that's in, in the, the evening. evening, Granddad. Okay, <laughs> nine o'clock. What's the channel? What film channel? four. Film I said it four. Already. Yeah. Leave me alone. Stop bullying me. TV movie so bad it's bad. Bullying. Uh, on the list. Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach. That is mm. one film. Along came Polly and Hercules starring Lou Ferrigno. Patrick Richard Wheeler. Is that the Hercules where he throws a bear into space? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Troy Ainsworth. Police Academy without Steve Guttenberg is not a Police Academy film. Just yeah. a montage of comedy sketches. Uh, Simon Belcher, the prize must go to Police Academy 5 Miami Beach for a number of reasons, the four previous films being one of them. <laughs> Karen Richardson, I object to Along Came Polly being on the list, if only because of Philip Seymour Hoffman showing us his sublime comedy chops. Lee Watman, uh, what a, I know I'm in danger of having my Wittertainment membership revoked yeah. and any chance of being allowed on the cruise possibly with it, but I quite like Along Came Polly. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Along Came Polly is a contender for worst... Okay, well, what what is our? I mean, on this, but basically, Police Academy Five, because on the basis of what that email said, with the answer being one to four, the the astonishing thing about the Police Academy series is how it kept going, despite the fact that the first one was kind of stretching a point anyway. But by the time you got to five, you just like you know, you're longing for the 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 Gutenberg gems of number one it's just yeah police academy five uh Simon Amage, which i seem to remember and i may be wrong because that came out in 88 and i had just started working at time out in 88 and i seem to remember going to a screening of police academy five in the coronet cinema on wardour street and i think although i may be wrong that the tagline on the poster was something like run for your lives or you know get out of here it was something to which the answer was yeah absolutely uh so what time could do we avoid that you can avoid that this could be a long on itv4 yes at 7 10 p.m in the evening thank you very much indeed for pointing that out as opposed to 7 10 p.m in the morning uh we uh do more reviews in a second mm. just on the breadwinner which we we're talking about oh yes uh, earlier and obviously uh, mark and i don't discuss this but it's clearly going to be movie of the week hey, you just... don't know show dogs is coming up that's true Lisa Powell on an email. I, dear Bread and Winner, yeah. I was lucky enough to witness the development and production of The Breadwinner. Oh, great. Being the lesser half to the technical director. I wouldn't put yourself down that No, place. the better half. The thought, effort, detail and consideration that went into the production was incredible and I am in awe of all involved. I feel the film gives a great insight into and perspective of life in Afghanistan, something which is so seldom portrayed in widely distributed cinema. I look forward to this film gaining great acclaim in the years to come and I'm incredibly proud of everyone who made it happen. Good. Had that email come in before we did the review? Uh, that came in at 20 past three. So uh, you were doing, you were sort of about I was in the middle of gushing. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. So Lisa, thank you very much indeed yeah. and all the best to your other half. 
uh, who is an equal half. Yes. Um, who clearly has done a fantastic job as technical director of The Breadwinner, which will be movie of the week, unless... It might not be. It might not be. It might, it might not be. There are, there are other, other, the other films are available. For example, what? Show Dogs. Show Dogs. Now, but, I'm looking forward to this because I can tell from your tone of voice how much you've enjoyed it. I just, you know, no dogs is better than show dogs. Um, there's a line in Show Dogs in which one of the... It's actually in one of the trailers in which one of the dogs says, no one makes talking dog movies anymore. And this is a gag because somebody's made a talking dog movie. And you go, yeah, there's a reason. And I'm kind of watching it. It's like, is it a real life dog movie or an animated dog movie? It's a real life dog movie with animated mouths. So they're real life animals, mm-hmm. but they're but they're animated to be talking. I've seen those things before. Yeah, yes. okay, fine. It's directed by the guy who gave us the Smurf movies. Oh, uh, also uh, Scooby Doo, Beverly Hills, Chihuahua. Uh, so the director has pedigree. Um, starry voice cast, uh, you know Stanley Tucci and uh, Max, who is uh, ludicrous, is a police dog, a uh, Rottweiler who seems to bust cases on his own as far as we can tell and through really complex and frankly not really that interesting shenanigans ends up being teamed up with an FBI agent played by Will Arnett to go undercover and infiltrate an animal smuggling ring um, that is uh, that has stolen a panda and in order to infiltrate this ring they have to you're losing interest already aren't yeah, I was you? just watching the cricket Okay, they've got to take part in a dog show that's going on in Las Vegas. That that so they're You're in, making this deliberately. And confusing. then right, they're in a car, and the the gag is that Max likes rap, but the FBI agent likes Elvis. Can you imagine the hilarity that will ensue when they're in the car together? No, don't you don't need to imagine it. Here it is. Viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were. Four hours in the day. Even if there were forty more, wouldn't sleep a minute. Yeah, I get props to hip hop, so hip hop, hooray! Ho, Viva Las Vegas! Hey, ho! Are you doing this on purpose? After five hours in a travel crate, we're listening to my music. You stop, Max! Stop it! That... What kind of dog likes hip hop? Um. The weird thing about this is, so anyway, so, so so Max, the dog, needs to go undercover to enter a dog show. And in, in order to do that, he has to learn to be a, a you know, a, a show dog and all that kind of stuff. And and I'm watching the, the thing and it's really quite not good. And then there is this moment in it, which you'll know about because um, there's been quite a lot of publicity about it. That One of the things that the dog has to do, and I'm sorry, there isn't any other way of saying this. One of the things that Max has to learn to do in order to win the show, he has to, you know, he has to be competing in the show and he has to win the show. Da, 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 da. And in order to do that, he has to learn to not flinch and bite when one of the judges inspects his private parts. And this is a gag in this movie, okay? And it's not just a passing gag. It's quite a long gag. And I'm sitting there watching this going, really? I mean, we've done the farting in the bath joke and we've done pretty much every other sort of lame do. Anyway, of course, when the, when the film started playing in America, many parents complained and said, that's, well, hang on, no, 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 that's really so inappropriate. 
Um, and they complained that actually it was giving out a message that was, you know, also potentially dangerous. There was a statement that was released by the film company which said it's come to our attention that there's been online discussion and concern about a particular scene in Show Dogs, a family comedy that's rated PG. The dog show judging in the film is depicted completely accurately, and uh, that's the that's the thing. But the filmmakers are saddened and apologise to any parent who feels that the scene sends a message other than a comedic moment in the film with no hidden or ulterior meaning, but respect their right to react to any piece of content. It seems that the company have now cut the offending scene from the American release. I rang the BBFC this morning, the British Board of Film Classification. As far as they know, the version of the film that's going out in cinemas now is the version that I saw a couple of weeks ago, which does have that scene in it. The BBFC said the scenes in question are entirely innocent and non-sexual and occur within the clear context of preparation for and judging a dog show. We regard the comments made about the film as suggesting grooming um, as a misinterpretation of the scenes in question. Yet apparently, the film's chief credited writer has said that the scenes had nothing to do with him and were to do with the rewrites. Whichever way you look at it, it's, uh, you know, it's a very, very messy situation. And were the film in any way interesting, it might be, you know, there'd be more to say about it, but it isn't. It's, it's, it's a really, really lame limp movie that you know isn't funny and does make a joke about why it is that nobody makes talking dog movies anymore and then proceeds to demonstrate why nobody makes talking dog movies anymore it's in cinemas i don't expect it'll be there very long (laughs) i think that counts as a thumbs down okay good uh so uh rich in salford yeah uh so it's eight minutes to four i've got another one to do i know you have but how many one just Zama. one yeah, yeah we don't want to spend eight minutes talking. No, actually i've got two but you know i've but yeah i have got two but Zama, take what you so do i get do i get a look in go ahead it's not long no it's fine go on it's about a code violation yeah go ahead and you need to you need to sit and pronounce because go. that's one of the things that you have to do okay it's by cinema staff uh, and i now feel that my world is in tatters says rich in salford on the grounds that if they can't get it right what chance for humanity so i'm at the local cineplex and watching avengers infinity war at the end of the screening as the credits roll almost instantly A member of staff comes in. The lights are brightly raised. This member of staff strutted across the auditorium, looked at the seated masses and loudly proclaimed, there is no post-credit scene, so you can all go. (laughs) I was astonished. I knew there was a scene because uh, being someone who can work the intraweb when it's on, I knew it. I looked at my girlfriend. I said, but I know there is. Do we stay? Various members of the audience started to leave, but there were several obviously hardcore fans of the franchise who were discussing that there must be a post-credit scene. However, by now the masses were walking in front of the screen and distur- disturbing the atmosphere. I have heard you discuss the notion of walking out during credits being OK, but this was to a whole new level, and I wonder if you considered publishing your code of conduct and issuing it forthwith to the cinemas of the land, obviously at a cost to the establishments to further boost your considerable coffers and troves. So clearly, it, that why anyone would walk yeah. on and say... There is no, there's no title sequence. There's no end yeah. title no, sequence. No, you can't do that. That's just no, which is clearly wrong. And yeah. if a, a member of cinema staff says that, then you know, I think you're entitled to say out loud and audibly, sit down. I've paid to see the whole film, and I shall wait, even if you're going to clear Thank litter you. away from my feet. So now it's six minutes to four, and here we go with another film. Zama, the new film by Lucretia Martel, who made uh, what Headless Woman sort of uh, quite recently. Well, quite recently, ten years ago, that was her most recent film. Anyway, this is her first period film, first with a male protagonist, based on a 1950s novel by Antonio Di Benedetto. End of the 18th century, Don Diego de Zama is in what's now Asuncion in Paraguayan River. 
He's awaiting his transfer to Lerma that will reunite, reunite him with his wife and his family. His situation is terrible. He's basically had to submit to the the local governors because he can't upset the king from whom he's awaiting, uh, you know, this letter that will take him to Lerma. Um, he's an Americano, so not born in Spain, and is told at one point, ah, yes, Europe is best remembered by those who were never there. Meanwhile, there is the spectre of this mythical bandit, Vicuña Porto, who haunts the land but seems perhaps to be a, a, a fictional character. No one's quite sure whether he's genuinely a bandit or someone that has been made up or someone in disguise. The whole film has this kind of waiting for Godot-like air about it because we begin with our central characters staring out into the waters, apparently waiting for rescue, waiting for the message that will never come. He's told all the time, your transfer will be here any day now. Meanwhile, everybody else seems to get transferred, but not him. He's a buffoon-like figure on some level. He's He has a child here, but he's talking about a family belonging there. He's a voyeur. Very early on, we see him sneakily um, watching women uh, uh, washing, and they call him out. They call him voyeur. He describes himself as being old but unable to die. And the film is about a number of things. On the one hand, it's about identity, but national and personal identity. Um, it's also about uh, sort of the darker aspects of you know colonialism and uh, Argentinian character. And, I mean, it's about Europe and South America and these kind of much wider international themes. But it works because at the centre of it is a character who is a failure, who has failed dreams, who is stagnated, who is stuck in one place. It has this kind of weirdly anachronistic use of, of music. Apparently the music was around at the same time that the novel was being written. So that's how that's being justified. And actually it works quite well. And then in the, in the, in the third act, it moves into this sort of really haunting scene, which could have come out of a Werner Herzog film, with this stark contrast of red-painted bodies and green grass and weird bursts of violence. It was Argentina's entry for the Foreign Language Film Award. I don't think it was nominated. But it's a really, really interesting piece of work, Um, not least because of the, the many different ways in which you can read it. As I said, you can read it as a personal thing, you can read it as a political thing, you can read it as satirical, you can read it as tragic... It's got a really haunting soundscape. There is this descending noise that is used at several central moments. Our central character feels crushed. He hears that something hasn't, he hasn't got the letter telling him to leave. And you start hearing this descending chord. You know, in uh, a Dunkirk, um, there's that, a, that, a, that rising chord that seems to rise and rise and rise and rise and never stop. Well, imagine that in reverse, the sound of dr- hopes and dreams and everything just crushing and falling down. And it's very odd because it occurs in this soundscape, which is otherwise almost everything is diegetic music within these sort of strange bits of... It's what kind of music? Music happening, of, of sounds happening within the scene. There are There is other music overlaid, but when it happens, it, it, it's very, very notable. Anyway... I thought it was a really, really fascinating film. I'm not sure that I fully understood it first time around. I'm going to go back and watch it again because I really, really liked What's it. What's it called? Called Zama. Okay. Also out this week, Edie, um, which is a, 
an odd little film about a recently widowed uh, woman on her last hurrah. She's called Edie. She has dedicated her whole life to her husband, who has now passed away. And she realises that as a result of looking after him and caring for him, she's basically subjugated her dreams. She's played by uh, Sheila Hancock, who is, you know, as we know, a brilliant actor. She finds a postcard from her father of a mountain in the Highlands, which her father had written, here is your mountain, let's get together and climb it one day, but she never has. So, faced with the prospect of going to retirement home, she decides to jump ship, Heads packs her bags, heads off to the Highland, meets Kevin Guthrie's Johnny, who plays somebody who runs a camping store, and who agrees to be her guide, to be her trainer, to attempt to climb this mountain. At first it's a scam, but then it turns into something else. It's an odd film. On the one hand, there are touches of local hero. It also reminded me a little bit of Shack, that film spelt Seeked, the Simon Miller film, which is often forgotten, the Scots Gaelic movie about, again, about mountains. The story is kind of contrived, not a little melodramatic, but I have to admit it got to me, not least because Sheila Hancock's performance is so great, and she knows how to sell a story, and she sold this story to me. Uh, so we got 15 seconds left and here it comes. It's the movie of the week. Shall we do it together? The Breadwinner. The Breadwinner. Oh, I wasn't quite together. Was it rubbish. The, the Breadwinner. Bread there you go. Perfect. I've been ready since the late 70s. There's a whole load of this before. Sir Sharonan. I just say, this is a song that's based entirely on one riff, isn't it? Yeah, it's a pretty good riff, though. It's pretty memorable, isn't it? Yeah. Can you name anything else the Knack did? No, they, they apparently they were going to be the next Beatles. Yeah. Know? They were considered to be the Lennon. But they weren't. No, they weren't. And they, but they did this. But, you know, they yeah. left us this. Sir, 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 sir. No, sir, 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 Sharonan. <laughs> And that's it. And now that will stick in your head forever. Next time she comes on. They were interviewed in the NME. I remember there was a really withering interview with them in the NME in which they talked about being the new Beatles. And I think that was the point at which it was evident that they weren't going to be the new Beatles because anyone who refers to themselves as the new Beatles is not going to be, the, going to be the new Beatles other than the Ruttles. Because it is or are. Anyway, there you go. David in Stockport. Uh, I felt compelled to tell your bad selves about and sing the praises of my wonderful local independent cinema, the Savoy, in Heatonmore, Stockport, specifically in regard to a recent screening of A Quiet Place, and particularly after hearing Simon's gem last week about the crisps being the only item left on the supermarket shelves in the opening scene. When my fiancé and I arrived for said film, we ordered a tasty but very quiet boozy beverage to enjoy with the movie. The attendant asked us if we wanted anything else and, quite marvellously, informed us that for this particular film, popcorn would not be available for purchase because it is, after all, a very quiet film. Instead, he said, right. would we like to help ourselves to compliment a complimentary tub of marshmallows? <laughs> Which is genius. The Savoy, the Savoy was already high in our esteem. This is now one of my new favourite cinemas. And perhaps I'm too easily won over by free, silent, sugary snacks, but the brilliantly code-compliant nature of this gesture of theirs has elevated the place's charm to new heights. It's an old one-screen cinema that was revamped beautifully a couple of years ago and given a vibrant lease of life by a family business who clearly love film and long may it and its kind continue. I'm not sure if 
silently packaged marshmallows are already an allowable item in the code, but since they are a slightly more fun equivalent of a soft roll, I do hope they can be added. We enjoyed them in silent rapture and thus survived the excellent film to tell the tale. You have to say that's you know a complimentary tub of marshmallows. That's is genius. It's absolute genius. There's no wrappings or anything. No, you no. Just shove it in your gob. That's really that's good. Yeah. The only way that could be made better. Yes. Can you do vegeta- Can you do vegetarian marshmallow? I mean, you must be able to. I don't know. Is there is there kind of beef dripping in there? there it, it's there it, must be. It's a gelatin thing, isn't it? There I think almost certainly will be. Uh, yes, a a a, a, a veggie version. A veggie version. Okay, but anyway, full marks to the Savoy in Heaton Moor in Stockport. Uh, absolutely okay. perfect. Meaty mellows or veggie version? Hmm? That's that should offer you that. You go meaty mellows or veggie version. Um, can I we just address the thorny issue? of our award, which we were talking about at the beginning. This one that I'm here, brandishing here. It's a lovely piece of plastic. Looking. If you if you want to see My pictures precious. of this on the Wittertainment uh, Twitter on the Wittertainment Twitter feed you'll find photographs of this splendid piece of plastic being paraded uh, <laughs> through the streets uh, last Saturday. Anyway, we said earlier that we had an idea as to what to do with this uh, piece of plastic since Mark and I couldn't agree as to who should take it. I thought you were going to say piece of history. So here it is. As it's a listener's award... It is. I'm, stro- I'm stroking you, the listener's choice bit. Uh, we're going to ask you, the listener, uh, to look after it. And well, the, you, you, the listener, there's like this one of it. And pass uh, it on from Wittertainee to Wittertainee. So, now, before you do it, don't get in touch asking for it to be you because that's not how it's going to work. It's I not mean, a competition. We would have done it like that, but it counts as a competition and then we'd all have to go, go on a course. course. You may remember Susie who sent an email... Uh, to jointly to us and Ellis and John from Radio X last week, talking yes. about how much podcasts meant to her. Yeah, uh, and uh, if we'd been asked to make an acceptance speech on Saturday night, which we weren't, uh, because they had no speeches, we were going to quote her email. So we've asked Susie to be the first custodian uh, of the uh, of the People's Award. Okay, she's agreed to keep it for a week or so, and then she'll choose someone she knows who's a Wittertainee and hand it on to them. Okay, so it has to be a trustworthy Wittertainee. It yeah. can't be somebody who's going to take the goods and then run away. And it can't be a randomer in the street. <laughs> randomer. How young are you? All we ask... Randomer. So there are, there are conditions here. It, all we ask is that custodians keep us posted, right, with photos of where the award has got to, and the aim is that it stays on tour and then eventually comes back to us in a year's time. But here's the thing. You can't keep it. You can't try to sell it because it is ultimately a worthless piece of plastic, no disrespect. Uh, <laughs> it's not. And you can only pass it on to someone you know. Don't give it to a stranger. Don't give it to a random. Don't just say, here, can you please take this off my hands? So it's going to start with Susie in York. We'll have an update where Mark and I are back in two weeks. We'll track its progress across the year or until it gets lost, whichever comes first. And as I said, you please don't get in touch and ask to be a custodian because we're not allowed to no. operate like that. No, because then it becomes a competition, and then it becomes. We can accept difficult. paper envelopes full of money. Feel free to, you know, you can if you get it, you can post it. You know, it could go off around the world, and sometimes you hear stories of gnomes being kidnapped from people's gardens, then being sent to Australia. Yeah, which apparently seems like a stuff. really funny thing when you do it, but causes great distress to the people from whose gardens they have, because people who have garden gnomes, and I yeah, am, yeah, see, yeah. I'm, right. no, I'm, no, 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 no. <sighs> Sorry, it, it is a classic one of those things, that, oh, it seems funny when you're doing it, but it really doesn't seem funny when you're... So, I'm sorry to be militant about this, but... You've been militant about everything. You can't be militant about a gnome. Yeah, it's I just, ju- I just gnome. think people who have garden gnomes should be respected and they Why? like their gnomes. Well, they should maybe 
What? Have, have a bench there or a tree or a plant. Why? why? What's wrong with Why shouldn't they have gnomes without anyway, them? Stop being anyway. so militant. You've taken a militant pill. <laughs> anyway, the basic thing is the Listener's Choice Award is going to go out to listeners and hopefully it's going to spend all year on tour. Uh, and if you and we'd like you to take a picture of yourself with it. Yes. So we can make like an annual and then we can have a whole wall of fame. Yeah. And then we could sell the annual for, for profit. Yes. For our profit. Good idea. Excellent idea. I think so. <laughs> anyway, Susie, you're, you're going to be the first person. Uh, to get the listeners' award, and you can parade up and down your street and say, "Look what I've got." Wear it as a hat. No, I don't think you can. You could wear it as you could actually. Where is it? A, a pendant. But it's a gold chain. Yes, because there uh, is a there's a hole in it. Next my time. daddy was a barroom gambler. What? what he is had this now? a chain five miles long. Right. Good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and before we conclude this gambling week's bar and blues podcast, it's time for our DVD of the week. Ah-ha-ha. Ah-ha-ha. Ah-ha-ha-ha. Oi, Mark. Oi, Simon. Oi, Mark. Oi, Simon. Oi, Mark. Oi, Simon. It's that time again. It's the World Cup in Russia, 21 days away. What? It's the World Cup in Russia in 21 days. Is it? I just said it is. Okay. Really? Anyway, our friends at the... Came round fast. Our friends at the Betamax and Laserdiscs Distributors Association have arranged a plethora nay, a superabundance of World Cup-themed releases. Okay. Mm-hmm. Twelve strong. Any team playing against England inevitably includes an extra player in black. Downside... Mark's not going to... I've got that. Downsizing for when England go out in the group stage. Got that. Early Man is both a football film and reference to our panicked reversion to the primitive long ball game. Very good. And we're 2-0 down against Belgium on June the 28th. Okay, I'm interested to see how you're going to make the next one work. Maze Runner 3, The Death Cure is how Raheem Sterling's runs will be described. Midnight Cowboys, absolutely nothing to do with Vladimir Putin. The Patriot is what Harry Kane is known as. Well done, well done. Now he's England's captain. Winchester is obviously about someone haunted by the ghosts of the past, much like the FA itself. Okay, but you skipped over the mountain of the cannibal god. And Vim Vendors, the goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick, speaks for itself. So what is your pick and what is Mark going to choose? Well, Nathaniel Byrne says, early man for Kermode, or I'll eat the plasticine they used to make the film. Luke Curtis agrees. Mark would choose Early Man. It had three family members of mine who could not care less about football loving the film. About football loving, loving the, the film. film. No higher praise than that. <laughs> uh, William Elder, we've got a hat trick here. New Early Man, Old Midnight Cowboy, Jason Isaacs, The Patriot. Uh, Sean Doherty, possibly Doherty. Midnight Cowboy is the obvious choice. But knowing what a keen sports ball fan Mark is... He will fall for the charms of Ardman's Early Man. And Mark Gorman, I think Mark will choose Early Man as the recent release. Alarms, often in the form of Mark's dissonant harmonica chords, go off in my head when I see phrases like it's got to be or it's obvious. Nonetheless, I'm guessing that Midnight Cowboy is Mark's oldie of the week. Well, let's find out. Take it away, Mark. Well, my my pick of the week is absolutely Early Man, which I I loved. I really, really enjoyed it. And I was very surprised when there were a few sort of slightly sniffy reviews about it and my prediction was that it's one of those films that once you get it you know on, on dvd or blu-ray or whatever it is you'll watch it over and over again and the more you watch the more you'll see because that's the way that those Ardman things work um nick park's solo directorial debut because he's always co-directed before on the features although he's solo directed on the shorts and i thought it was wonderful and 
uh, for the oldie, I'm going to go for Midnight Cowboy for reasons which you well understand, Simon Mayo. It's a good film. Yeah, but beyond... Harmonica. Thank you. You, me, and a key named B. We were together when I... Me and you and when, I, when, when, I, when I stretched the very boundaries of musical talent by attempting to play with the uh, BBC Orchestra conducted by Robert Ziegler, still available now on YouTube. So if you see Midnight Cowboy and you hear that tune played absolutely brilliantly and you think, I wonder what it would sound like if it was slightly messed up mm. by somebody with big... Then go to YouTube and find out. That was a great show, though. What was a great show? The on, show that we did. Oh, the show that we just done. I thought. No, 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 no. That was the show that we did in Manchester. In oh, Salford, I see that one in Salford when was, we did the when we did it with the orchestra with Robert. Remember? Was, I do. Okay, you're just too busy packing no, I up. Remember, you know, I remember the orchestra packing up as well, going for lunch halfway through, thinking. Where, I said Salford. Where are they going? I said Salford. I said Manchester. Then I immediately corrected now? myself. Robin. Well, I you... said Salford, and then Robin's come in my ear and has corrected me. Salford. I said Salford. He's getting very militant again. You need a break. Oh, you're having one. <laughs> Nicely played. See you in two weeks. Where are you going for your week off? I'm not. Are you not having a week off? No, I'm working. Who's doing the show next week? Me. Oh, well, this one. Oh, I see. No, it's Ben and Clarice, as I said. Are yeah. oh, you going to come in anyway? You're going to just I sit in the just, corner I'm, I'm just and heckle. Sit over there by the bin. You're gonna, I wouldn't have done it like that. That's not how I would have. I wouldn't have said that. No. Yeah. Mark would be being far more militant at this stage and maybe just dropping into another one of his anecdotes. Yeah, Clarice is brilliant, but she doesn't have anecdotes like I do. No one has anecdotes. No. Angelina Jolie never said to Clarice, I like your hair. I'm going to get Brad to do his like that. Anyway, I've got to go and do a thing now. That happened to me. Thanks very much. In the real world. See you soon. Bye. And then I once... Hey, I met Michael Caine recently. He said, hi, Mark. He knew who I was. Even before I'd introduced myself.